Welcome to Movie of the Year, the only podcast that has the science and the screaming to unequivocally figure out what the best movie is of any given year. I am your host for the evening, Mike Gravano, and this season we're digging into 2001, and this week specifically, we'll be talking about Wes Anderson's The Royal Tenenbaums with me, as always, competing in a vicious or a monotone, head-to-head, passive-aggressive, decades-old struggle is... Your champion from last week, please give it up, and please let me say the right name, Greg. It was me. I won. You did it. You said it correct. I am here to shake hands and hand out lollipops, and I am all out of handshakes. Yes, yeah, just lollipops, and I don't have to touch anybody. <laughs> that is the... How, how's your week been, best friend? It's been pretty good. I watched the Royal Tenenbaums a whole bunch. Oh, smart. Yeah, so got a lot of, a lot of feelings. So that was your strategy. Opinions about that. Yeah, but it's one of those movies that the more I watch it, the less I feel like I, I have a firm take on it. I'm, I'm not sure. It's, uh, I don't know. There's a lot of curious things going on in this movie here, Mike. And I don't, I, I ultimately, I didn't know where I, I fell on it, on the emotional spectrum. Are you worried you watched it too much? Because maybe you should have watched it just enough to have a firm grasp on it, and now you're going to be on quicksand? Yeah, maybe I should have just watched it one time and then just been like, yeah, I liked it. It's good. Well, then you might you wouldn't get frozen by your confusion. Yeah, exactly. Well, the, yeah, but that's the problem. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking myself to death here, man. We'll see what your competitor strategy is in a second. Please put your hands together for the returning Grumpalumpagus, Ryan. Yeah, yeah. Let me hear it. Let me hear it. Dude. Fucking dipshit motherfuckers. He's the bad guy. Uh, I'm gonna come out straight away, gentlemen, and say that it's Tenenbaums, bombs. As in, I I don't understand this movie because I didn't see the first nine royal Ninen bombs, <laughs> and not Tannen bombs like it's some fucking German Christmas tree. Okay. Okay, so that's a, it's a completely different word than the word for German Christmas tree. <laughs> I think it is. Okay. Are we saying it wrong? But I'm not sure. So I'm I'm I think that we should all be angry and unsure at each other. That yeah, I is how you, I go through life. I do brother. say Tannenbaum, but it's it's Tenenbaum. Tenenbaum. It's Tenenbaum. Tenenbaum. Oh, Tenenbaum. Our home and native. That's a different song. Totally different. And now Mike is singing, and I'm not going to win this episode. There's no fucking way that I'm going to be able to control myself if Mike is singing and then still get enough points to win this. Should we do a musical episode? Where we yes. sing only? Yeah, where we only You're sing our opinions. Sing. I love this idea, and so would the audience. Ryan, Greg has stated that his strategy was watch the movie to the point that he doesn't know how he feels. Uh-huh. What was your strategy coming into this week? Well, my first thing that I did is I took a knee, and I, I got in touch with all of my feelings before I watched the movie. So those are all there, and they're fucking perfect. And then I watched the movie, and I feel like I understand understood every single pixel of everything that was happening the entire time. Interesting. We'll see which of those strategies. Uh, we'll take one of you to, in my eyes, both winners, to the finish line, where one of you will actually be the winner. Now, <laughs> how do we feel? What, what's your history with the film? How do we feel this this is going forward overall, Gregory? I'm a Wes Manderson. Like I love the the guy's whole catalog. I believe I've seen each of his movies multiple times. Uh, even I'm, Bottle Rocket. Uh, yeah, Bottle Rocket. Yeah, oh because my for, goodness. for well, it's not then, even Bottle Rocket. It's it's even Darjeeling Limited. Yeah, that's I the used question. to own Darjeeling Limited. 
Uh, back when Rushmore came out, when you got tired of watching Rushmore, your only option really was was to watch Bottle Rocket. So I used to see it a lot back then. Uh, but yeah, like I watch Rush, Rushmore a ton, and and uh, I'm a big fan of the guy, and I'm not like, um, I'm not tired of his shtick, and I don't judge him overly harshly. But this one particular movie, for whatever reason, this one particular time maybe, just really set off like the is this bougie white nonsense alarms more than I, normal the answer is always yes like i know, absolutely the, I, know, yes. I, know, I, know I know like i'm not saying it's unique to this movie or that it's a unique observation of mine but for whatever reason on these viewings one of the things that really stood in my way was i just kept thinking like oh my god this is all just like so removed from maybe it's because like 9-11 happens three months after this movie comes out because and this of movie, this movie maybe this movie creates a universe where where only very slightly bad things can happen while the movie is running, things might happen that are bad before and things might happen in the future that are bad. But within the movie, it seems like bad things are almost guaranteed to not happen. And that world feels like so interesting for you to belittle suicide attempts. It's crazy Ryan? being on this this show for so many seasons, like so many years that we've done. We figured out like what at this point, like five or six movies of their year. But the, one of the like the through lines throughout all the seasons is like, where's our fucking Wes Anderson? Like, how yeah. are we like definitely avoiding Wes Anderson movies? And now we have one. The other through line that has uh, appeared throughout all five or six seasons of movie of the year is, man, iconic movies of the past are just all fucking white. And then we have this like explosion of the two things all in this episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, I mean we can't get away from like that. Like it is the whitest shit ever, not just in the skin color of the people's faces, but also what white people are into, you know, like mm-hmm. they might as well have painted mayonnaise on the camera lens of every single one of these scenes. But also I'm so stoked that we finally get to do a Wes Anderson movie that I, I, I really want to talk to you guys about this person who has been a part of our lives for so, so yeah. long, you know? And I think for me, uh, Rushmore is, you know, like uh, should belong on some sort of mountain with foreheads of, characters i don't know what i would call it but royal tenenbaums is right there you know like i this is one of my favorite movies of all time mount rushmore is not a segment we'll be doing tonight <laughs> so, so for just for no confusion that is not a sound you'll hear introducing yeah. a segment where we well, talk. ryan brought it up and i didn't want the listeners to get confused but wes anderson you were saying would be on your mount rushmore <laughs> nope <laughs> that's i didn't no, i didn't listen no, to what you yeah, said at all yeah. <laughs> I was looking for the button. You're trying to press the button and yeah. Uh sorry, I should what I should have said is toilet flush skadoosh. That's the kind of <laughs> language that you're into. Uh but no, I I would like to do whatever uh due diligence that we have to do. And I'm not playing it off. I think that we do have to do it of you know what what how these movies come across in 2020, but I would also mm-hmm. after that, I would or before that would really like to talk about what he means to me as a like a, a storyteller, and then uh, how he is as a filmmaker. Yeah, I, I think we'd be doing to a me. Dis- it's very very important to me. We'd be doing a disservice if we didn't talk about the white nonsense that Wes Anderson is and gave birth to. But it'd also be doing a disservice to, uh, I guess, us as individuals. But more importantly, him as a director and storyteller. Uh, he is very important. And he's doing a lot of things that just I understand. I don't think he's fully cancelable yet. No, I mean, th- oh no, I don't think it rises to that. It's it, it, it. I would never think it rises to that. And I think that he responded after this this movie to critiques like this. And that's what I think. That's why I think you have a movie like Grand Budapest Hotel 
Grand Budapest Hotel. He's like, okay, yeah, I will. Instead, I will bring this to a universe that has literal Nazis breaking down the door, and I will still do it this way, even in a world full of horrors. So it's like it's a choice he makes to to make a right. world that is that is is sensitive and nice. It's not, and I don't think it's cancelable. I just think it's you have to kind of talk about it, especially now yeah. at a time where the world seems like such a hostile, terrible place. And then at a certain point, maybe it went too far. Maybe went too far and went to a Rivers Cuomo level of like, oh, uh, look how much I love Japanese people. It made Isle of Dogs to some sort of potentially creepy level. Yeah. As long as he didn't Tim Burton it and say, people of color are just not in my visual aesthetic. So it's not a race <laughs> thing. It's an art thing. <laughs> Why Tim Burton came out in the middle of Edward Scissorhands, looked at the camera and just straight up said that, I will never know. That's such a weird thing to do. And kept saying, leave it in. This is the director's During a Gremlins 2 style (laughs) review that takes place in the middle of the movie. That is how we generally, I guess, are feeling about the Royal Tenenbaums. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to dive straight in to Fairytale New York. Hey, guys. Thank you so much for listening so far. And let me just tell you that everything ahead of this commercial is much better than what came before it. That's my guarantee. While I have you here, let me tell you about a website. It's called yourpopfilter.com. And it's everything you need that's related to Pop Filter. Everything Mike, everything Ryan, everything Greg, everything Cassie, everything is there at yourpopfilter.com. While you're there, go to yourpopfilter.com slash Amazon. Make that your new Amazon bookmark and do your shopping from there. That way we get a little piece of the action and Amazon doesn't. Make sure you're also listening to everything that Pop Filter has to offer, which includes the Superhero Show Show, a podcast that covers every single TV show that's based on a comic book or comic book property, and Movie of the Year, where we sit down and try and figure out what is the single greatest movie of any given year. That's Superhero Show Show, that's Movie of the Year, and that's yourpopfilter.com. Rate, subscribe, review, bye! In 2001... Wes Anderson had the unenviable task of following up Rushmore, the greatest movie of all time. Using J.D. Salinger, Orson Welles, and his own parents' divorce's influences, Anderson co-wrote and directed The Royal Tenenbaums. The success of his first two movies allowed him to create an all-star ensemble, including Gene Hackman, Angelica Houston, Danny Glover, Ben Stiller, Gwyneth Paltrow, Bill Murray, Kumar Palana, and not Jason Schwartzman. The movie was a mild success with critics and audiences, many of whom at the time said that he didn't mature enough after his first two movies. Most people now say that that is bullshit. It was also nominated for upwards of one Academy Award, including Best Original Screenplay. The movie tells the story of a family coming back to the house they grew up in to spend time with their estranged father as he dies or does not. Taste Buds, I ask you this. As we've already talked about, Anderson's films are not unfamiliar with critiques of twee whiteness, and The Royal Ten Bombs is no different. Focusing on the patriarch himself in 2020, does it seem like Anderson's using Royal to say something about bougie white nonsense, or is it just there without commentary? I, my first thought, before I, I guess I started watching it, was like, oh man, Gene Hackman calls Danny Glover Coltrane at some point, and this is going to fucking, this is going to be rough. And a rub. grizzly bear, and yeah, a big buck. An old grizzly bear, and that's not, like, he, if, if uh, Ethelene's suitor was white, I don't think he would have said that stuff, you know, but... Well, now, he also says, he, if you want to talk jive, we can talk jive. Yeah, yep. <laughs> I could talk jive all day. Um, but now I sort of think that it's, it's an achievement because um, nothing, nothing's really changed since then. You know, Royal is just as hateable 
as all of the people that are now his age today in 2020. Um, but I, I guess offers us more of like an opening understanding of are there ways that we can talk to this person uh, or are they just truly awful? You know, like you know the what's ra- so weird about him is that he very clearly employs racism more than like experiences it as like a worldview. Mm. It's like when he wants to attack Henry, he uses racism. And I feel like it being like a, a tactic is even more disgusting than just this natural predisposition towards it. It's like the one way I'm going to make this guy feel uncomfortable is I'm going to constantly allude to his race mm-hmm. in kind of dog whistly ways. So like, obviously I am calling you an animal. Obviously I am bringing up that you're black, but not like using very derogatory language. So then it's also kind of like gaslighting in a way. Yeah. In the commentary, uh, I guess the line was instead of Coltrane, it was Satchmo. And, uh, Danny Glover was like, I don't like that. And Wes Anderson's like, well, what should we do? Uh, Coltrane? And Danny Glover... Or Danny Glover said it should be Coltrane. And Wes Anderson was like, oh, what does that mean? Danny Glover was like, I don't know. But it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it sounds like bad, right? And, and, and we know we know why it's bad. To just say like, oh... You to know, call like, a black man a different black man's name yeah, on purpose? Yeah, that, that is... You can do that with really any you know uh, race or gender or whatever. Just like, oh, you're there. But uh, just the fact that like he's not even good at it. And he's just trying to get a rise. He he is a racist, but you know, yeah. Like like Greg said, it's not like built in. It's not deep seated. He uses it tactically to over not to undermine people, and but that's fucked up in such a different way than well. My parents raised me this way, and I didn't realize blah blah blah. Like his best buddy is uh is Pagoda. Is that his name? But Pagoda, I mean, yeah. Pagoda, but it, it, it's his best buddy. But it's also like he made sure to have a uh, POC as a right hand person, you know. Yeah. And doesn't and it's not him- his best his best buddy so much as his like valet. Like right. he's, yeah. And I I think that I think if you move beyond royal, there is there are still uncomfortable racial dimensions to the movie, and one of them oh, is the for fact sure. that like uh, so often other usually indigenous peoples of the world are used as like just backdrop like literally in the background of a lot of scenes like on the walls and stuff there are tribal masks and clearly Margot has like um a fascination with africa but it doesn't feel like a fully like realized like three-dimensional experience it feels like a aesthetic and that one that one i have less of a problem with than like eli cash who is just basically cashing in on the stuff that he like he he knows that he's not well like he doesn't get good reviews he just knows that people like his books and mm-hmm. i have to imagine that that's because people are into the disgusting bullshit that is probably in those books yeah he's totally he, cormac mccarthy right he yeah, makes, yeah he's, he makes custer he's out to be a hero i i think that's ve- like here's the defense as again like a white dude defending wes anderson but i think eli cash is a shittier cormac mccarthy or maybe just what wes anderson thinks about cormac mccarthy and so He's that's part of the joke is he is the cowboy. So he is purposefully like he has all the Native American imagery around because he's just using that as part of his image. But I also think it's the takedown of this kind of white liberal upper upper west side white liberal is 
uh, the mom's an archaeologist. Margot went to Africa. It is all these white folks who go and say, see how worldly I am. I've been there. I know those people. They're so they- often like just thumbing through an atlas. Like every mm-hmm. kid is shown at one point just like kind of casually looking through an at- atlas. I mean, Margot married a Jamaican dude for six days. Just probably just to have that on her resume, you know, like she went there, they barely knew each other. And then now I can say, look how worldly I am. Can, can anybody fault a 19 year old and who they marry at that time? If 19 year olds didn't make poor marriage decisions, I literally wouldn't exist. Honestly, uh, I was swimming and he canoed out to me does sound like a reason why That's a 19 yeah. year old should get married. Yeah. <laughs> That's if what your body's telling you at that time. <laughs> Aside from just the racism, though, like I do think Royal is an incredibly interesting character because... I think like it's just a mark on what Wes Anderson is capable of doing because the shit that comes out of this guy's mouth is uh, borderline villainous. Like he's essentially yeah. Doctor Doom in a Wes Anderson movie, and not just because Doom is a villain, but because like his ego, the, the fist him... shaking of it all. Yeah, exactly. It makes him say insane things, and he like, loves like the ass. cleverness of it. He loves like the he loves the play of it. He mm-hmm. reminds me of a of a like a good natured Iago. Like, he yeah. likes that it's a game. He likes to do it. You know, he likes to do all the little steps. But it's all second nature. One of my favorite lines in the movie is it's, it's towards the beginning, and he's telling Chaz, he's telling Ben Stiller that he wants to meet his grandkids. And what he wants to say, what he means to say is, I want to meet my grandkids finally. You know, like, it's been yeah. too long. But what he does say is, I finally want to meet my grandkids. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm finally at a place in my life where I would like to meet him or meet them. And that's fucking, that's royal right there, you know? I guess this is growing up. Is is he, is he actually redeemed at the end? And is the movie really trying to do that? I he, think that's a, that's a really tough question. I think that it, the whole movie is Would you like, say it's a really good question, Ryan? No, I wouldn't say it's good. Uh, <laughs> I would say that I asked probably better questions. Uh, I would say that it's an okay question because uh, the movie has a hard time finding, and not necessarily in a bad way, but like it has a complex relationship with figuring out wh- how long do we hold grudges uh, with these truly terrible fucking people. Mm-hmm. And at what point do we say, you know what? We're not looking for perfect. We're looking for just slightly better than they actually are. And I think that's the realization that Chaz eventually comes to. Is he better or did he just learn it? Like he is charismatic well, no matter what version of That's an interesting is. thing that the movie does because the movie kind of pretends like there is, you like if you blink, you miss it. But the movie kind of pretends like there's some big scene where he has like a come to Jesus uh-huh. moment. But he doesn't actually have that scene. It's right. just like the, the movie, the only thing he does is he decides he's going to get an actual job. And he's going to like being becoming working at the elevator, like him, him being outed and then getting the job as the elevator um, attendant, I think is, is supposed to be the turn. And then the movie just treats that as like if as if it's like a huge, big, dramatic shift that he makes. And as the viewer, I think you get caught up in it and you just mm-hmm. you just well, get swept along. That happens Watch- in other movies. Yeah. Watching the commentary. Uh, if you watch the commentary, Wes Anderson is watching the movie and he's saying, uh, I am just realizing now I did not explain <laughs> yeah. how he got that job or why. Yeah. He did not know it until he sat down and watched it. But that's we, the pivot of the entire emo- like the entire emotional landscape of the movie pivots kind of almost off screen. But I think I uh, Mike, I do think that you're right when you say that like other movies do it and the way that they do it, the way that uh, the, this movie does a lot of things that we we can get into is clothes. And uh, oh, yeah. the entire time Royal is wearing this suit that nobody would wear Unless you're like a child thinking about what an adult wears, right? Like this speaks to the whole like Which storybook thing of it. Like 
Yeah, and, and yeah, and he's also a, he's a child. Uh, he's a thirteen-year-old in like a seventy-year-old's body. <laughs> even more than any other child that we see, he is a child. Um, and so when he's in that suit, that like very like uh, what's Annie's dad's Daddy name? Warbucks. Daddy Warbucks that would wear. Now he's wearing it in the real world, and we're like, oh, this person's a fucking asshole. But through the back third of the movie, when he is wearing the elevator attendant suit, that sort of does change everything. Like at the end of the movie, he goes to get um. Ari and Uzi to go to the uh, cemetery. He's like, who wants to grab some burgers and hit the cemetery? <laughs> is it Which, dumb to say that in a, in a for a character who could not deal with the fact that life has ups and downs when he becomes an elevator attendant, that's him admitting... <laughs> and I know, I, I know it's really shallow, but I honestly do think there's supposed to be something there about the fact that he's embracing that being part of a family comes with the, the parts that are really tough, too, not just the parts that are really fun. No, I do think that is dumb. But then when we see him... <laughs> When we see him as the elevator attendant and uh, in the suit at the at Helen's gravesite alone, Ari and Uzi were not allowed to come. That that like we start to feel for this person that we know to be racist and we know to yeah. be an egomaniacal asshole. You know, we just want these people to be broken down. But like, even so, he broke down. He's broken down a little. But like, I guess how? Why? What does he actually learn? Because he's still the same dude. Like getting that Dalmatian the day Buckley dies, he isn't real learning. I, he learns nothing. He he teaches his children like without actually doing anything that you just you you just you gotta like forgive and forget he, a little bit. You know, I think like, also he learns to give people what they need and not necessarily like what they want or what he thinks that they should want. His he, attitude when he gets off that bus and tells Ethelene when she's with uh, Danny Glover, yeah. uh, I brought you the divorce papers, like he is jovial and like mm-hmm. that really is a thing because uh, being Royal, found out was a good thing for him. Being found out freed him. Like, right. And so now now he knows that like, oh, uh, I I'm I'm getting a divorce with you. I'm signing the papers. Like fuck you, dude. We don't believe you. Oh, what yeah. I actually have to do is Bring the papers, put them in your hand, and prove to you that bring I'm a doing this. Public. Yeah, and bring somebody <laughs> who can do that. Also, it's so interesting that really, when you look at the entire movie, he is dying. He's dying the entire time we see the movie. His heart is failing the entire time we see. He dies barely before, like, oh, the movie is just about to end before he actually dies. So, like, in a weird way, the universe redeems his lie. Yeah, that's a that's a fable that's like a storybook thing of it's almost like he's a ghost that has to go back to the to back to earth to like solve you, all those problems before did he you goes guys think of ron did you think of like a, a, he's a reverse leer right. because he's like a leer who's putting rather than dividing his family right he's putting his family back together right. at the end of his life if if i if i can keep them separated then i will stay in power forever and then all of a sudden i've hit this age where no i realize that bringing them together they don't need me anymore and that's the thing that that's like the generational gap is that's what we're you know dealing with with baby boomers right now is like they're all flailing trying to keep power but they can go to heaven or whatever storybook thing you want to believe in when they just say actually you know what i'm gonna bring everybody together and then when i'm not needed anymore then i can move on what what do you think the connection between royal and richie means i think that one's more fucked up i think that one's just like richie is a gonna make me the most money and b is the one that accepts me there's no way that Chaz and margo as children or adults are going to like let him in and richie is just so kind-hearted or stupid that and i think that royal is the kind of guy who targets in on this immediately 
Yeah. They're right. all pretty stupid, though. Uh, Richie at least <laughs> knows that he, like, buys royal shit hook, line, and sinker. But uh, honestly, Chaz thinks he doesn't. And then the second he's like, get out of here, dad. And then Gene Hackman just falls over. Royal yeah. just falls over. He's like, oh, my God, are you okay? Like, oh, you, none of you people understand the depths to which this guy will go. And that makes you always fall for him. But believe so, it or not, even with Richie and Margo hooking up, there's not a lot of sibling time together. And so what it seems like is that <laughs> this the siblings have to come closer to the parents or the parents have to come closer together. But really what it is is the siblings finding the middle ground. You know, and uh, when Chaz realizes that he should be a little bit more like Richie and Richie should probably not wear his heart on his shoulders or his wrists as much as he does, that's when everything is okay. You know, when Richie and when he stops hiding behind his sunglasses and his long hair. Right. And then and then just cuts (laughs) it back into handsome Luke Wilson. God damn it, guys. It's like he's carving himself out of fucking stone in that scene. (laughs) Do you guys, we all have beers. Every time you guys shave your beers, you just hope that Luke Wilson's underneath there. Yeah, just a stronger jawline than I've ever had before. It's it not never just, is. It, it's not just strong. His jawline like juts out away from his face. Yeah. I, yeah. I've never seen anything like that. He could be Batman. Also, bright oh, blue shit. eyes in the meantime. He's the Batman. <laughs> Means nothing. Go figure out what we're talking about. Go to yourpopfilter.com <laughs> slash Patreon. Nope, flip that. Patreon.com slash yourpopfilter and listen to why we say Luke Wilson should be Batman. <laughs> we have to take a break. And when we come back, let's look at the entire career of one Benner Stiller. Hola, Filterinos. I just wanted to interrupt real briefly and say thank you for listening. Thank you for your support. If you want to support us a little more directly, you can go to patreon.com slash yourpopfilter. There, depending on what tier you pick, $1 a month, $5 a month. If you're crazy, anything more than $5 a month, don't do that. You can get extra content. There's extra shows, extra series, uh, behind-the-scenes stuff. Uh, You can pay for ryan to draw you a picture Uh, i can write you a poem you can get the shirts off our very own backs all of that and so much more over at patreon.com slash your pop filter while you're on the internet you should check out shady monk he does all the tunes you've been listening to he's on bandcamp he's on spotify uh soundcloud wherever kids get their music these days that i'm too old to know shady monk lives there uh you can probably follow him on twitter and instagram as well that's shady monk wherever you get music Check them out. Taste buds from time to time when we have an actor with a widespread career who's meant a lot to us. We like to look back and ask ourselves, how did they get here? This is not Ben Stiller's beautiful house. This is not Ben Stiller's beautiful wife. This is Ben Stiller's beautiful career retrospective. So what we'll be doing is going through era but era listing all of his film roles and the two of you will be creating the ultimate hoagie the royal hoagie Mm. aka the mount rushmore of ben stiller's career understand Yes, yes yes absolutely so let's start with era number one we are skipping his bit roles in movies like empire of the sun we are. Oh, the- do you remember that time though? Ah, uh, when S- Steven Spielberg was like Ben Stiller, run over there. Say, I'm in Empire of the Sun. How old was he? Twenty. <laughs> uh, Forty-seven. Twenty forty-seven. <laughs> he was very ancient. He's a Blade Runner. <laughs> he was one of those Blade Runners. Uh, so right now we are laying the all 
comedy groundwork from 1992 to 1996. His big, normally we don't talk about TV, but when you have a television show named after yourself, it, it, it probably should be mentioned. So in this era, we have The Ben Stiller Show, Reality Bites, Heavyweights, Happy Gilmore, Flirting with Disaster, and The Cable Guy. Okay, so Cable Guy was a movie that he wrote? Yes. What What does he do in The Cable Guy? I think he has a bit role in it. Oh, he- okay. He's the he's the guy being accosted by the cable guy, right? No, that's Matthew Broderick. Oh yeah, they're very. Similar. Is he another cable guy, like a like a different competing cable guy? He might be a competing cable guy. Is he, he just the guy wants who, to give Broderick cable? Is he the guy who can't get Pepsi uh, or can't get he, Silverware at Medieval Times? He directed it. Oh, he directed the movie. Yeah. Is that is that does that usually is it said that you have like a big role if you direct it? Like, yeah, you should also be the star. You should be the cable and the guy. Was this movie uh, way ahead of its time, or was it just like a like a a tone that no time would embrace? I love the cable guy. I think it's awesome. Um, it it gave us Ben Stiller. It gave us Judd Apatow. It gave us Matthew Broderick. I'd never seen Ferris Bueller. It gave us Jim Carrey. I'd never seen Ace Ventura: The Mask or Dumb and Dumber. <laughs> uh, but I don't know how to put him on the rush more because of this movie. Can we talk about flirting with disaster for a second? I would love you to talk about the thing you think we can talk about instead of talking about the thing you think we can't talk about. Cool. I know when you say that uh, you love what I'm doing, it typically means you hate what I was just doing, and I appreciate that. <laughs> I love uh, when you start doing something different. Flirting with disaster, I think that uh, this was something that he did not have a lot of involvement with the writing or directing. This was Mike's favorite director, David O. Russell, director of Silver Lightning's Playbook. Um, and... Sense. I think this was him showing off that he is a pretty good actor and pretty good at like uh, taking the script and doing his own thing. Do we even think that anymore? Or when we just hear his name, are, are we just thinking like, oh, is, he's going to do that thing where he's like, yeah, yeah. Uh, Gaylord well, Foster over and yelling. There's a couple versions of Ben Stiller. So that that, that is his go-to one. I, I think his his quintessential is, is heavyweights. Heavyweights imprinted. The, the one kind of Ben Stiller we all often think about. And I think, Greg, that we were probably born too early, but with people that were born after us, heavyweights is a big deal. Did you know that, Greg? Did you know that the stock on heavyweights is just skyrocketing? I guess it's, yeah, I guess I've like heard people talk about it, but I never saw it myself. Is this a movie about fat kids? Yeah, they go to uh, Fat Kid Camp. I believe Paul Feig is the camp counselor, uh, who's nice. He's a nice camp counselor. The fat kids go there and love it. And then Ben Stiller, who's basically playing his role from Happy Gilmore, his role from Dodgeball. Uh, he has the goatee, and he takes over. And it's just facial hair, right? Like, if he, Ben Stiller has facial hair, he's going to act like this. Yeah, but he has the very specific douchebag. We all have facial hair, and nobody would expect us to act like Ben Stiller when he has facial hair, because he always has the, the specific kind of mustache yeah. or goatee that makes you assume he'll abuse old people or chubby kids. Do any of these in his first era, do you guys think belongs on the Ben Stiller Rushmore? I mean, honestly, for me personally, the like happy Gilmore uh, old like nursing home attendant, like I know it's a small role, but that is seriously like if you say Ben Stiller, that's probably the first thing I'm going to think of. And I heard recently that uh, doing that scene took forever because he and everybody else could not stop laughing. Um, yeah, I, I will say that in my marriage, which I I have to assume is like most people's marriage, uh, if either one of us says, uh, hey, can you get me blank? <laughs> we will respond with, I'll get you a warm glass of shut the hell up. <laughs> <laughs> 
See, that's why I love you and your wife, because most people think about the scene and just say Mista Mista, which is not that funny. <laughs> uh, oh, hey, hey, that Mista Mista lady? I think she's dead. I think dead. I just killed her. <laughs> but so, real, real, I do want to talk about uh, Michael Greats from Reality Bites. That's a different type of Ben Stiller character. I don't know if he's going to make the Rushmore, but that like he was playing against Ethan Hawke. Ethan Hawke was like the... Gen X, I don't fucking give a shit, bro. Who cares? And he was like, I'm disaffected. Yeah, like, it doesn't even matter. I listen to Pearl Jam <laughs> while I'm listening to Green Day, all right? <laughs> so, and uh, Ben Stiller, like shit, honestly. Ben Stiller was the guy in the suit saying, Well, you know, I know why the cage bird sings. It's because it's caged. That's that's his style of comedy. Because he says it. And like I, I, I think the straight man, the straight white. Dude is part of Ben Stiller's whole like stardom. Yeah, that yeah. whole like simmering anger thing. I think it's really like he and Adam Sandler both do that of just like, yeah, we know middling white men are angry about everything. <laughs> we get it. It's very cute. And they both like everybody came to play at the same time. We're like Owen Wilson, Ben or Owen Wilson, uh, Vince Vaughn, Will Ferrell, and John C. Riley were like, oh, right when we get to that point where we're about to simmer and explode. We're just going to become like we're going to lower our our IQs by a hundred. Mm-hmm. And Ben Siller tried to hang in there and be like, "No, th- uh, uh. he wants yeah. to make that sound." <laughs> and he does try to out of man, good collection of dudes trying to do the same thing. And he is the one who's like, "What if it's a real person the whole time?" Unless he's the cartoon with the the facial hair. But when he's not the facial hair, Ben Stiller, he is no, trying I- to lampoon the real person. Yeah, I'm talking about clean shaven Ben Stiller, which I guess is uh, trying to explain the plight of the white man which saying it now thinking about it now does fucking it, it is weird but yeah fuck this whole segment we're out so before we move on to the next era who if anybody belongs on ben stiller's Mount rushmore from this era i feel like heavyweights is a big deal i feel like tony perkis is a big deal i agree because i am of the age that you spoke of let's go for it let's do it you guys i love it he'll keep the mountain trim too which i like Little extra granite on so some of the sections. Sounds like you ag- agreed on that one. Ryan. So I will say because there, there's a thousand errors of Ben Stiller. This is not like your daddy's Rushmore. Whoa. We're taking presidents on and off. Oh, okay. Throughout. <laughs> so should we take the ones er- who own slaves off then? Yeah. No. No Ben Stiller character who owns slaves will ever be on this mountain. <laughs> I'm There's no that way that there. Tony Perkis from Heavyweights didn't own slaves. Well, there's yeah, no he fucking just said way. They're work at my camp, quote unquote. Era number two is from 1988 to 1999. Short era, but so much happens. This is big time, can't change Ben. We have zero effect, something about Mary, your friends and neighbors, permanent midnight, the suburbans, mystery men, and black and white. And as this I read that- This was a big era dang. for me. There's a lot of uh, shit I've never heard of in this era. Like, have you heard of permanent midnight? I've heard of that one. I've seen never that one. It's about the guy that like was addicted to heroin and did the- like. It was about the creator of Alf, right, Ryan? Or just a writer on the show, yeah. but he gets he gets so high on heroin, but they can't use Alf, so he punches. He gets high on heroin and punches a green Alf-like monster to death mm-hmm. while high on heroin. Who doesn't want to see that? <laughs> um, big ones for me. I uh, I think that Zero Effect is an amazing movie. This is him and Bill Pullman as like detectives. I think that it's it, this is part of why I fell in love with Ben Stiller, but I don't know if it's Rushmore worthy. Um, and it's your love of like fucked up detectives. Zero effect do, is like feels like a proto of the nice guys. Yeah, I do love fucked up detectives. But uh we have to talk about Ted. 
there's something about Ted where I think that now Ben Stiller is a household name. Yeah, this this put him on the map. I, I was surprised going through this that it wasn't just huge hits after this. It took a while. People were like, that guy. But he... I don't. I think a lot of people would roll their eyes if you said Ben Stiller's alt comedy. But look at his career. He is. He's a fucking weirdo, and Especially it's weird that he's Stiller's made it as big. Yeah, that was a deeply weird comedy that nobody accepted, or liked, or wanted to talk about, or watched. <laughs> <laughs> but like, he invented Zoolander a decade before the movie. He he likes weird shit, and it took a while for alt comedy to hit mainstream, and people really like him. Or yeah, I uh, like he likes to take normal shit and like put a twist, put that Ben Stiller mm-hmm. twist on it, you know. And I wonder if there's something about Mary does have that Ben Stiller twist with Ted. Uh, if this movie was made five years before this, then Matt Dillon would be Ted instead right. of like the giant toothed detective or PI, and would do nothing, you know. Like he would add nothing to it, you know. Like at this point, Ben Stiller was just cast and like, yeah, this is any white dude could play this role. And I wonder, it's been a while since I've seen it, but I wonder if he did bring a lot to the role of Ted. I think so. I think he provides a really good center because what that movie starts doing without you realizing it for a while is getting more and more absurd, almost like supernaturally. So Mm -hmm. Uh, the whole world starts to kind of like logically break down in that movie. And I think that he plays the straight man so effectively that it keeps us anchored to that like sort of central position. It feels like a pretty normal comedy at first, and it is like not in any way. He he also brought going method where they wanted to use special effects, and he went, "No, I really will zip my nads. Zip These are my nuts. nards, and I think tip right up in there, a little tip right up in there." Does uh, this might be? Uh, I don't know if it's generational divide or this movie is, is truly looked down upon. What's Mystery Men do for you guys? <laughs> oh, Mike, did you come to the two right people, <laughs> Greg? It, like. Is this is our is our friendship based on Mystery Men? <laughs> yeah, we were really excited to see this this movie, and I've only seen it the one time, and I still think of some elements of it. Like, I mean, I could still see like Janine Garofalo bowling the, the her dad's bowling ball head, and then of course, like the last line of the movie is like like it's a bad movie, but the last line is is very funny, which is where the Mystery Men were number one, everyone else is number two or lower. <laughs> There's how many to- how many toggle throws in Toto? Oh yeah. yeah, how many in Toto? Like I've never stopped saying the word Toto yeah. since then. Uh, I had not heard that word before that movie, and now I've, I've said it every day since then. <laughs> I thought the movie invented that of say instead of saying total, say cut Toto. off the letter and say Toto. <laughs> uh, and like his his uh, character was Mister Furious, and so like when everybody was using their superpowers, he would take uh, forks and like scratch the top of a limo, but be very mad about it. <laughs> uh, his most Ben Stiller part in the entire movie was where. Uh, the like Native American uh, leader of the team would say things like, if you cannot control your anger, then your anger controls you. And halfway through him saying something like that, uh, if you cannot control your anger, Ben Stiller screaming, what? Does your anger <laughs> control you? Is that what you were about to say? Yeah, that's probably you, what you were about to say. Do you mean Hank Azaria? The Blue Raj? Ha- the Blue no. Hank Azaria had the forks as his weapons, but Ben Stiller grabbed a couple. And I was yeah. thinking of no, the Blue I'm, I'm Raj saying, the other day. You said the Native American leader. No, it's I'm a different saying... character. It's a different oh, okay. guy. The leader of the group. No, it's different. You're, uh, yeah, don't do not do that. Don't go there. But um, <laughs> I was thinking of the Blue Raj just the other day, right? I was like taking the forks out of the washing machine. And I was like imagining it. 
whipping them at people. What is so sad about that movie is there's probably three scenes, and they're the ones that we've laid out, where you can see what the movie's potential was and what we thought it was going to be going into it. But honestly, there's so many times where it felt like they flipped on the cameras and they were like, save us. And it just, it didn't work. Do you guys remember the legacy that this movie has left? Uh, they decide that they have to form a team. They have to get a superhero team, so they hold auditions, uh-huh. including Dane Cook. and with, with The Waffler. And when that scene starts, do you remember what we hear? All-star, right? Dweet, 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 yeah, everybody dweet, always says about dweet, Shrek, too. And they forget it's, not that it, Shrek. it's not Shrek. It's not Shrek. Y'all forgot about Mystery Man. So I, I got to ask, guys, I, I would love to talk about Mystery Man all day with you. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> this is this a movie era, podcast. Is it? Does it? Who, who's going up here? Zero effect. Something about Mary. Friends and neighbors. Just something about Mary. Suburbans. Okay. I think it's Ted for sure. Ted, yeah. And I would like to put Mr. Furious on, but no, uh, no. I, I'm being told no. No, I, uh, I won't allow it. Uh, I won't allow it for now because he can get knocked off. So right. for Ryan supporting his heart, Mr. Furious and Ted will be up there for now. We have one more era before we have to stop from 2002 to 2004 ben stiller superstar part one we have keeping the faith meet the parents zoolander the royal tenenbaums duplex along came polly and starsky and hutch starsky and hutch i remember being so excited i thought oh this is going to continue this run of these actors being in awesome movies and starsky and hutch i think was the ruination right it was like oh not only is this movie not funny but comedies aren't funny at all i don't like any movies anymore yeah (laughs) we should stop remaking things we should stop making things but it uh, meet the meet the parents. Yeah, it sort of doesn't Greg. matter where you fall on that. Like Greg Fokker is. I mean, we got to put him on the mountain, right? Do you remember though? That is one of those movies that uh, has. I think that it, there's like a little brother in character in that movie, and he's a weirdo. And the reason he's weird is because he's gay. I that's, think that's old wedding school. crashers. Oh, okay. No, that's <laughs> that's right. it, this is a family of movies. <laughs> Uh, That's no, but, crashes, like, I believe. In this era, we have Greg Fokker. We have two Greg Fockers in a Chaz Tannenbaum and a Derek Zoolander. Those are three yes. heavy hitters. Heavy, heavy hitters. Uh, only one Greg Fokker so far, but yes. So who are you set? Do those? It's got to be Zoolander, right? Like, are we supposed to pick one person out of this era? No. Or can we have two? You can have two. Does anybody actually care about Greg Fokker? Oh. Heinlein. <laughs> I'm, he seems nice. Because um, <laughs> I'm thinking it should be Ch- Chaz and. Uh... Well, you each get one oh. per era. Let's okay. say that. So, Greg, who's your one for this era? Chaz. No, that's bullshit. It, oh. No, there's three from this era. Cut You're somebody else. There's three from this Cut era. Cut fucking heavyweights, dude. So, yeah, who's on the mountain currently? Uh, I've got uh, heavyweight Ted from something about Mary, Mister Furious from Mystery Man. I don't know. Take Who's him off. Get Take cut? him off. Uh, Greg Fokker, Zoolander, and Chaz. All right. So yes, we're gonna cut heavyweights and no, cut. You should cut Mister Furious. Nobody gives a shit about Mister Furious. We gotta cut too. I I was still talking. It's oh, crazy. Sorry. I Continue. was like, and cut. Keep going. Uh, Mister Furious. Mister Furious. Right. Yeah. That's what I was saying. Good one, Mike. <laughs> okay. So just so I'm clear. Mike cut Mr. Furious twice, Yeah, and Greg interrupted the whole time. <laughs> yeah. That is what happened. So your current mountain of Ben Stiller iconic roles is, Ryan? It's uh, Ted from Something About Mary, Chaz from Royal Tenenbaums, 
uh, Gay Fokker, Gaylord Fokker from Meet the Parents, and Zoolander from I can't remember. That is our intermission of Ben Stiller's career retrospective. We're gonna go back. Wait, to Mike, talk before about you go, royalty. before you send it away, Mike. Do you think that there's anybody who's going to take a seat from those four? I do. Really? Yes. Those are four biggies. Is it there Walter? Four Mitty? hugies. What? Is it going to be Walter Mitty? <laughs> what was the porn version of The Secret Life of Walter Mitty? When we come back, more The Royal Tenenbaums. Titty. <laughs> well, that is very, very funny. Or very sad. And perhaps now you have something to think about. Or very problematic. And perhaps we have something to think about. But in any event, I'm sure you have some reaction to what you're listening to. So why not check us out on the social media? You can go to Instagram or Twitter and find us at Your Pop Filter. Email contacts at Your Pop Filter. Hey, everybody. Keep watching them movies. Taste buds. Except for brief lines and glimpses of her plays, we hardly hear what's going on inside of Margot. Is this a failure of the movies or a failure of the viewers in not understanding what Margot's all about? I read that uh, Luke Wilson was upset the entire time of filming because Richie was just not getting enough screen time. Mm -hmm. And uh, Ben Stiller goes away for... Chaz goes away for like 45 minutes of the movie. Really? Yeah. I think like, yeah, he like... The the his boys come into play a lot more in this in this chunk. Yeah, but, but he's there's just a whole time there. where he's like apart from them. And then he he walks out and he closes a window and like that's sort of all he does until he delivers his his final line of the movie, which I hope that we get a chance to talk about at some point. But as far as like as far as your question Mike goes, I think that this is an ensemble, and I think that Margot has a ton of time. I feel like I know Margot really really well. Is so is it is it too woke for broke? Then saying. It's because she's a girl. We don't know a lot about her. Is it so? I'm saying, is it the viewer's fault? Because I, I gave two options I, there, and you're saying I, the question's bunk. I'm saying you're <laughs> bunk. I feel like there is the temptation to say that she's a thin character, and then chalk it up to the fact that she's one of like two female characters in the entire movie. Um, but I think that it is valid. I think to say like, l- let's look at how the other kids how much like screen time they get and they don't get a ton and i also do think there is supposed to be another idea with Margot, which is that she presents herself in the plays that she writes and so like mishima style it might be that the best way to understand her is to approach her through her art and not through like actual like talking to her but i do uh, even at the end of all of that i still feel a little troubled and i feel like because at times she is and maybe it's just her personality and so it's valid it feels like she's just supposed to be kind of a dream girl for so much of it. Um, well, I guess hmm, I think we know the most about Chaz because he is vocal the most. Like he'll let everybody know how he's feeling, and then Richie he gets a couple monologues. He's I don't like know, the, I guess, he's kind of like the star of the family, and so I think that he kind of gets a little bit more time in the movie. But he's the oldest son, and for better or worse, that's how a lot of family's function which, which richie which richie is the richie. older oldest son so like that's oh that's always kind of like the star of the family right and then he's like the athlete and he's the one who's like you know has i think the most enduring fame because they all start off as famous little kids he, but, i'm gonna go right go ahead 
Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna say that Margot is part of an ensemble, and then I just sort of want to talk about like why she is so impactful to me in my life, and it's not just because I saw this at a time where I was super into uh, the uh, makeup that she's wearing or the fact that she's always a zebra, but instead because uh, the fact that she was adopted is such a big deal in the movie, and like how how she is dealing with everything. I think it's always there. She as a character is sort of plain, right? Like she's sort of the action hero, sort of the, like the, I go where I want to go person Mm -hmm. and to watch her break down. And there's a couple of scenes where that happens. Uh, I want to point out where she says, where uh, Ethelene tells her daughter that Chaz is moving back in Uh, this very renowned artist (laughs) who is married says oh Chaz is moving back in she says like well why does he get to do that no fair (laughs) well anybody could do that forever and then like that sort of says like oh you sort of always wanted to do that and you never could and I want to talk about how uh she uh like she was not taken on all these adventures which I think is although she's not on those adventures that is character building and then it's the the ice cream scene like uh at the very end of the movie Royal takes her to get ice cream in a very famous scene because it's a scene where uh, the whole ice cream restaurant is filled with single dads and their daughters trying <laughs> to get their relationship back together through ice cream. And it's a big deal for Royal because... I love uh, how he's like, get something. She's like, I don't want anything. And he's like, come on, get something. She's like, okay, butterscotch sundae. Yeah, but, like, yeah she, she already has an order yeah. on hand. And it's the sweetest be- thing you can get. Before she says, oh, I don't want anything. I'm leaving in five minutes. His look of dejection is that, I mean, that does sum up Royal. Like, he is awful, but I do sort of love him, you know? And then she says, I'm going to, you know, I'm going through a lot too, but I'm not going to tell you. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think that's just part of, like, the movie's allure is, like, where Margot, I think, is the best written character in the entire movie. Doesn't get the punchlines, but... The, the allure is there, and I think the evidence is there of what is going on with her. Now, there's a certain point, there's a couple montages in the movie, and one, we get a montage of Margot's secret ears, which a lot of we had already heard about. Does it yeah. reveal anything? I think that the person you want to compare all Tenenbaum uh, siblings to is Eli Cash. And Margot is the one who hears about how Eli Cash sends <laughs> Ethelene all of his clippings. And Bargo is disgusted by that and not only keeps smoking a secret, but all of those adventures, those are awesome adventures. Like those are, she lived a life and right. that's fucking rad. And she just, she does not have that thing that Eli does of sharing it all. Yeah. She has to get accolades, but it, like I get that. So, but again, we've heard about a lot of these adventures already. Does seeing it give us an extra window into her at all? I think it aesthetically it, the way they're all like so hyper composed I feel like we get to see her past as the way she views it, which is a, a series of like vignettes that inform her her plays. Um, because it's like each of those is almost like conceived of as like little two dimensional dioramas from her past. I think what's important about her being um, a uh, like adopted kid is every single uh, Tenenbaum kid, including Eli, who is like the sort of one that is and isn't, feels like an outsider. The one thing that like makes you a definite Tenenbaum child is if you feel like you are not accepted the way all the other ones are. And so they each feel like the outsider and they all have a different reason to claim that as their own. But the, the thing that the movie does, which is so brilliant, right. is it like it shows how they all feel like that, which is very specific to being a Tenenbaum. 
or part of literally every family that's ever even existed, royal you know? doesn't it's, feel like a tenenbaum it, remember eli says i always wanted to be a tenenbaum but and wants royal to says be. like yeah. i i always wanted to be as well me too dude and yeah. he's like he is the royal tenenbaum of the royal tenenbaums and, and his is he kind of pushes himself out of the way so is the movie saying like and maybe it works best couched in white nonsense is we all feel like this. The human condition is feeling yes. outside. Well, and this, this, I, I think we can't understand this movie without understanding the, the book, the brothers Karamazov, like the, the way that like in the brothers Karamazov, the idea is we are all Karamazovs. We're all Tenenbaums, right? Like the, the things that unite them and the things that they go through, they represent all of humanity. We're all in that house. We're all part of the family. And you think we couldn't understand that without having read the Brothers? It's Karamazov? impossible to understand I, it without reading the Brothers. Karamazov. I think that I think that the, this I think Ryan. that I think this movie, which co- goes out of its way to conspicuously reference books and literature, mm-hmm. I think that there are avenues that are opened up if you compare it to other works of literature that study generations in the ways that like Brothers Karamazov does or Infinite Jest. Like I, I do think that there are begrudgingly. <laughs> he said he said infinite jest <laughs> <laughs> you got you gotta give gotta give points to the infinite jest uh because we're focusing on the siblings what does it mean that as adults richie and Margot dress essentially the exact same as they do as kids but Chaz does not. Chaz does evolve from a kid stylistically. But he he I, reverts though, doesn't he? Doesn't he go from dressed like an adult as a child to being dressed like a child as as an adult? They they all have Again, the same disease, which is that they did they they didn't really have childhoods, and so they never really moved past being children. And that's the same thing Royal has. He is still just this sixty five or seventy year old child, and so like she wears a barrette in her hair constantly. Like something like a little girl would do, because mm-hmm. they they be, by being child geniuses, it it removed the child part of the equation really, and it just it robbed them of that. But I think this is also speaking to the whole uh, like children's book of it all. You know, like there's not a picture on every page. You know, you sort of have to imagine this in your head. And if you're a kid reading this, this is exactly what Margot, Chaz, and Richie would wear. As adult, you know, Richie's adult quote unquote uniform is just a like it's like a a headband and then like a tennis sweater with a brown suit covering it because that's adult, right? If you're a tennis player, but now you're adult, that's what you would wear. And then Chaz in the red gear like this is just them. uh, This is what this is a child's imagination of what these people would wear, just like with Royal wearing not just a suit. But his specific types of suits. But Ryan, do but, you remember that part where Richie got a bunch of sweat in his eyes? No, you I, don't I, remember I, that part, do you? Because that headband <laughs> kept all of that sweat out of his eyes. So I think there was a functional side to it that you're just purposely not paying attention to. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> but but I guess because Margot and Richie, the kid actors and the adult actors, are in the same costume. So you think a red tracksuit is childlike and not just his weird kids are and literally wearing it. Yes, I do. I do think yeah. that if you think that that's what you should wear at all times, <laughs> if then you, yes, if you, you, are a, you sort of have a child's if brain. If you are a child who eats your lunch while drinking coffee, standing at your desk to, quote, save time, then for you to, <laughs> for age, what? For you to age into an adult that wears one tracksuit every single day and then a different tracksuit for your father's funeral... I think, honestly, something is going on about your sartorial choices there. Feels- also, if, if I was 12 and I, w- I was reading this book, like, like I, f- I feel like 12 is that perfect age of, like, your past children's books, but, like, really not yet into bestsellers at the airport, you know? Like, 
then what you would do is like, oh, this person has two kids. They're going to wear the same thing. They're all, all three are going to wear the same thing. For sure. Well, it definitely adds to the, the fairy tale storybook feel oh, of the yeah. Tablet family. It, to me, it feels like Chaz very like proto Silicon Valley. The like, I'm going to wear the same thing every day to so my mind can think other thoughts because I didn't think about which t shirt I should wear that I also, day. Yeah, there's that now story about solve Einstein the where I, both Einstein and Pee Wee Herman, when they both open up their closet, it's the exact same <laughs> outfit all the way down. I also mm-hmm. felt like there was um, like an interesting color story going on, not just like beyond just like identifying characters with their outfits i felt like sometimes there was like um a meaning to the colors that i could only sometimes follow i noticed that uh ethylene she switches between pink and blue a lot and pink is a color that royal wears a lot he also wears a light blue but then henry wears wears blue and when she's vacillating between them she vacillates between wearing like reds and blues depending on like which character between the two of them she's closer to at the moment i thought that was kind of interesting just the fact that uh, Richie covers up his tennis outfit with like a really like sandy brown yeah. suit, you know, like what what other like color could obscure this more than just dirt brown? Mm-hmm. And then you know, Chaz, we didn't see him wearing the red as a kid. That's something that comes on when clearly his anchor comes on because fucking God killed his wife. Yeah, he's like, like right, yeah, and the, that's his red. That's when the red jumpsuits come on. The color of frustration at God. And then, yeah, and then putting the kids in it, like, I think that's another thing that speaks to Chaz, too, you know? Like, he is, he's sort of like this, he he sort of thinks of himself as a god. Like, I'm going to dress all of my, all the people I control the same, whether it's in red tracksuits or Dalmatian dots or whatever, mm-hmm. you know? Like, that's a thing where he just says, like, well, if you guys are all uniform, then I know that you're mine. I won't lose you two in a group. I won't right. like. I'll always know that th- these mice are mine because they're Dalmatian. I'll always know that these kids are mine because they're dressed in red, and because they'll have the exact traumas that I have, so yeah. that I then <laughs> impressed into their brains as well. Here's hoping. and the same hair, not too big, not too small, just that hair. Th- think about uh, like parent children relationships. What is? I think it's hard not to then bring in the the, the other is Dudley and Raleigh St. Clair. It does have a a sort of parental connection there. As a as a twosome, I love that their names are Raleigh and Dudley. Like uh you don't looking at the names, I don't think you get that, but to hear them, Raleigh and Dudley, like they really does have like a couple of like Tweedledee and, and Tweedledum. <laughs> yes. Is so is it just to, to build up the storybook character that way, or or do you think it's also bringing up parentage and raising children? I think that's about like the way and I think it underscores the way in which the movie shows how generations are like not the older generation raises the younger, but how the older and younger cobble together some sort of kind of dysfunctional, but still sort of like growth. Because by the end of it, you come away feeling like Dudley Dudley's the one that takes care of Raleigh Sinclair. Like he's the one who like seems to um, like actually have solutions or say things that even if they're like not emotionally appropriate fit the mood and like help set the 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 tenor yeah i think that dudley does have a little bit of the precociousness that most anderson kids do but a lot of i mean like a lot of it is oh i don't have kids yet so i'm gonna have you around so i have somebody to fucking laugh at and mock like there's a time where uh raleigh st Clair's face breaks you know like dudley can't do a thing that he asks and he's like "Hmm." he loves it when he's amazing oh god so good. He loves how fucked up you he weren't is. able to do that. Yeah, because he he also has that ambition of oh, this is just for the book. I can yeah. do it for the book, and that's a little 
I, I think it is a little more open because Evelyn comes out looking like gold, but she also pushed kid geniuses there. So I think that ambitious parent of I'm going to push my kid, uh, his is is open there and that the movie's dealing with. Ethelene comes off. This is like this is just from this rewatch. Like I've really never noticed this before, but Ethelene comes off as a little bit like a just like a boss or the person with a hard hat that like makes sure that you clock in and clock out on time. Like they were they were not getting warmth from their father throughout most of their lives, but the mom is just like I don't know. I got this book. I'm raising three geniuses, and she wants to make them as genius as possible. Yeah, but not like as good a people as possible well, she's doing the know? same thing like, Chaz is doing right he does a more warped version of it but she's having she has her kids basically run fire drills and stuff i mean she's having them hold right. press conferences right. she's labeling them right. as geniuses when they're when they're just children like but she has this end goal of like oh and i don't think her book was her end goal her end goal was i i'm gonna i'm gonna say that i gave birth to three very successful geniuses These are be my dalmatian and, mice and what we have at the <laughs> end is three people who sort of failed at life mm-hmm. and she had uh, ro- a royal to give all of the blame to yeah but like <laughs> so that's moral it, it, just, it doesn't have seem like there's not yeah have a royal but it doesn't seem like there was a lot of hugs there was not like a lot of cuddling and reading bedtime stories it was a lot of i'm going to make sure that you guys become the geniuses that you seem like you might be as 10 year olds even the way they know that's exactly the best mothering even the way they enunciate when they speak to each other is like so formal and there's a lack of Which warmth is, in there which is fucked up because that's just Wes Anderson screenwriting, right? Yeah, but it does happens. show you like that's how that's how in his brain kids. Well, talk these to are like other. the the desiccated East Coast like familial upper class relationships, right? They're like they they esteem one another, but they have a really hard time just being like I love you. Mm-hmm. And instead, they're like you know, uh, oftentimes when my mind turns to you, I am suffused with a pleasure at the thought of our Congress. And it's like this- okay, cool. This has already been delved into. We don't have time to get into it here, but uh, Wes Anderson and Noah Baumbach are best friends and oh, sure. co-writers. They have written scripts together. And uh, watch, doing this rewatch, I realized that they both had a similar childhood. Tenenbaums, and, Baumbach. And Anderson went to write Royal Tenenbaums, and Baumbach went and wrote The Squid and the Whale. <laughs> but it's like it basically is like, here's how we're dealing with our parents and how they fucking how they treat children. Well, that feels like the perfect time to end five minutes late. So (laughs) we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to dive back into Ben Stiller's career. Taste Buds, 2004 to 2006. Is Ben Stiller still a super starer? Ryan, who is currently on the Mount Rushmore Ben Stiller? We've got Ted from There's Something About Mary. We've got Chaz from Royal Tenenbaums. We've got Greg Fokker from, I guess, Just Meet the Parents. He was in three movies, but For we'll now. just say Meet the Parents. The Fokkerverse. And, and Zoolander, who was only in, as far as we know, Zoolander 1. Mm-hmm. Yes. The famously named there, so. Zoolander 1. <laughs> 2004 to 2006, Ben Stiller was in Envy, Dodgeball, Anchorman, Meet the Fockers, Night at the Museum, and Madagascar. So I think right here to all fields, man. Yeah, but I think the big one here is dodgeball, right? Like this is facial hair back on. No, uh, I've seen Envy. I've seen Envy too, man. Where's it go? Up and out. Who hasn't seen Envy? (laughs) Are we the only three people in any given room who's seen Envy? (laughs) So we can all agree. Didn't we go to a screening of Envy? We did. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) I'm fill me with Envy with the with the poo poo spray, right? Yeah. Where does it go? I don't know. Up and out. 
So Night at the Museum, Ryan? Is that no? What wait, there was another one in here that I thought was even even Dodgeball. It's Dodgeball. It's White Goodman in Dodgeball. I think is the like uh, don't make Goodman. me bleed my own blood. Don't make me think my own thoughts. He has a mm-hmm. he has a pattern for the lines that he delivers. But I do think that the, his Dodgeball role was a big deal. Yeah, it is the 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 bigger and more popular version of his role in Heavy. Oh, how about Anchorman? I. Was well, he only he, in it for like two minutes? Yeah, what was he in? It yeah, after? he was in it in the in the, the giant, big fight. Uh, the big fight. Oh, but I, yeah. I wanna, it's hard. Ben Stiller is great, man. He, I think he might be cameo MVP. He can show up for two minutes and crush. In a way, so few can. Yeah, like they. That was an ad lib. He didn't even know he was showing up to a fight. He just rolled onto the yeah, set. Yeah, well, Farrell just said show up and he just started <laughs> he yelling. Was ready at him. to rumble. Okay, so that's such a small movie. Yeah, so I guess Dodgeball, I don't know. Is Dodgeball, I feel like, has like kind of a, a big cultural footprint, but it's, it's not a, like, like, you wouldn't sit down to watch Dodgeball right now, would you? I think that, I, I would say that, based on looking at this list, I could see his character in Dodgeball taking over Chaz. Yeah, I, I think Chaz, while important to maybe this group of folks, uh, is, again, because Rushmore's iconic, not favorite, that... I think dodgeball, and especially you, you have to have a Ben Stiller facial hair representative. I think dodgeball is it. All right. Well, maybe it's him once he gets Tubby again singing. My milkshake brings all the boys to the yard while playing with his boobies. <laughs> you guys stay past credits in dodgeball ever? No, nope, guess no. not. It's not the just friends of our life. <laughs> <clears throat> Don't call out things only i like ryan uh so night at the museum in madagascar there are three of them both we don't know that yet but neither of them alex the lion and security guard the security guard from night at museum don't do anything for you guys in iconography i I think i've seen a couple of them uh i think i saw madagascar something but no yeah you're supposed to want it that was actually a good movie guys i recommend it we'll talk about that later uh but not not there yet. Not there yet for no, the Ben Stiller. Not. I, I mean, when it comes to a dark chocolate or a coffee, Madagascar all the way. But for a, for a sure. CGI movie, I don't know. I like to move you're it, move more, it, though. You're an over-the-hedge man? Yeah, I'm an over-the-garden-wall guy. If I'm trying to drive around Madagascar, I'm going to rent a Madagascar. That's how I'm going to get around. I feel like I should get a point for that, Mike. I don't, Not to tell you your job, but... Yeah. Are you serious? He asked for a point and then Ryan, gets it. Ryan, what you did Everyone's was really wild. bad. Okay. What you did was really every bad. once in a while uh, that'll happen. <laughs> I will say, uh, Malagasy food, which is what you call things from Madagascar, is delicious, and everybody should try it. Gets a point for being worldly and for knowing adjectives. Oh, and yeah, uh, saying what you call food from Madagascar, and then saying that's what you call it. Yeah, yeah no, that's <laughs> wow. What to is have the con- damage. Have, Just let me have this. To have control of the drop pad is really every white man's dream, isn't you it? You really don't have to analyze everything I do. <laughs> 2006 to 2009. Which is what you call it. That is what he just said. Which is what you call it. 2006 to 2009, we're calling I do what I want to do. And in that is The Heartbreak Kid, Tropic Thunder, Madagascar 2, and Night at the Museum 2, Battle of the Smithsonian. (laughs) Okay. Uh, I think... Tropic Thunder is well-loved. Yes. I can't yes, remember his part in it. Like I remember Tom Cruise. I remember he played the guy who people. always like you never go full. Yeah, yeah. full. Yeah, full. he went full. Yeah, he, he doesn't say full. it. He just did it. He's he's like this, this is this is the movie that 
clicked that I never got it as a kid that Ben Stiller has always been making fun of Hollywood. I feel like 2008 is maybe the end of an era. Tropic Thunder is the end of an era where uh, a lot of the words they said, a lot of the blackface that they did is just done now. Like Tropic Thunder can have all the trophies and let's just move on. It is weird when 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 blackface combos come up, some people try to bring up Tropic Thunder and it's the only one that resoundingly everybody's like, "Shut up, that's the point." And it does just move on in that conversation. You're like, "It we're not, I remember okay. being a big one for the R word. And yeah, after it had been in the theaters yeah, for like That's a the week, word that we're trying not to say. Yeah, people were finally like, you know, we really shouldn't say that word anymore. And it was in that movie and just how awkward for them. It also wasn't crazy funny in the meantime. It wasn't oh, hilarious. I like that movie. Uh, it did have Jay Baruchel. I always want to give a shout out to Jay Baruchel. And also uh, his name in the movie was Tug Speedman. Okay, that's pretty good. Yeah, I think I think the two young bucks in that film are way better than the older guys. Who's Jay Baruchel and the the booty juice. <laughs> yeah, the the rapper guy. Like, I think those two younger actors crush, and everybody else. It's like, oh, you're doing that thing, you do. Yeah. Randy T. Jackson. But uh, these are all swings. And R.I.P. Misses, I think I don't think anybody from this era makes it on the mountain. Yeah, it's why it's called the "I Do What I Want to Do" era. <laughs> it's. Uh, and after that, from 2010 to 2013, uh, we're calling it Ben Still Here. <laughs> Greenberg, Little Fockers, Tower Heist, Madagascar 3, Europe's Most Wanted, The Watch, and The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. All right. So there's some fucking, fucking dumps here. Yeah, like dude. diaper dumps. Tower yeah. Heist and uh, what was the other one? The Watch. The Watch were supposed to be huge. Comedy blockbusters made no money. But believe it or not, I'm a Greenberg fan. <laughs> me too buddy used to own it on dvd, DVD. I love what were the special features dvd i love that did greenberg movie. come on and do a director's commentary of the movie greenberg i would have yeah, loved that in character no uh, this is a noah bombach movie mike that's bombach yes and this is when uh throughout the history of pop filter you point out that i hate bombach uh i actually love him i just don't sork in his dick the way hmm. you do terrific uh, because you're a dickhead. I like it. I celebrate Greenberg. I celebrate Squid and the Whale. You, you finished that, that insult with because you're a dickhead. Yeah. Okay. Um, I, I, I do want to give a couple moments for Bombach, but I don't know if it can go on the mountain. But I really do think that like it's a it's a perfect explosion of Bombachiness and stillerness. All mm-hmm. It's distilled into this one movie. Distillered. And I, I think it does evolve it matures his non-facial haired ben stiller type role like he grows he's slightly different he's allowed to think other things than greg from little fockers he still he still closes his face up and chops a lot i mean ben stiller that's a tick he's not gonna not do that so nothing from this group getting added to the mount rushmore i don't think so man. no all right the final era of ben stiller 2014 to 2020 and we're calling it uh, because there's so many prolific errors. This is called I Mostly Produce Now, because uh, he's just not in that much anymore. While We're Young, Night at the Museum 3, Zoolander 2, The Myrowitz Stories, Brad Status, and Hubie Halloween. I have to That s- just came out. I have to say, I really like While We're Young and The Myrowitz Stories. I think those are two well-directed movies. Are those also both Babak? Those are both Babak. <laughs> yeah. The While We're Young is fucking great, where he's part of the older hipster couple uh-huh. trying to be cool for Adam Driver and Siegfried, which Adam and Siegfried. I do think that you're contractually obligated to do. If you're in a movie like Reality Bites in your youth, then you have to be in a movie like Wild yeah. Young when you're older. You know, like <laughs> you have to bookend your career with movies like that. 
a generational career commentary. Yeah. Now he's going to have to be the dad in a Meet the Fokker style comedy in the future. Oh, my God. With Robert De Niro playing the kid? That's going to be hilarious. <laughs> yes. But, like, playing the kid the way Bruce Willis did in Look Who's Talking. He's just <laughs> the voice of the baby only the audience can hear. What are you talking to me? Who are? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I'm not hearing any uh, no. No. clamoring. Yeah, no. For. It's gone stiller. Rolls. I would say that overall. There. I think that you you hit the nail on the head, Mike, when you said that like when he is mainstream, but like sort of mostly making fun of mainstream, just slightly, you know, like turning it up to eleven. Then that's where I sort of fell in love with him. Uh, when he is trying to appeal to mainstream uh, audiences, like falling in mop water in a museum, which <laughs> I, I haven't seen in those movies, but I have to assume at some point he puts his foot in like a mop bucket and then falls over, right? Yeah. Security guards are well known to also mop. I'm guessing that, there's a lot of like conspicuous buffing of the floor, and then yeah. at some point he slips, falls on his back, and like slides all the way across, like through several rooms, while it makes a really loud squeaking. <laughs> That's, this sounds funny. I like this. His face. <laughs> You're back on. Board. Yeah, I like it. His face slides right into the crotch of a mummy. Can oh, you man. even imagine? Oh, that Dude, is yeah. stinky crotch. You know that mummy hasn't showered in eons. I, so his his production company Red Hour. Because, like, throughout all this, he makes the, he helps make things like the Birthday Boys, uh, I think the Mr. Show reboot, like, the he, uh, Comedy Bang Bang. I think, do you think he makes the Madagascar movies, your nights at the museum, your little fuckers, so he can keep getting money, so he can keep making the cool shit he used yeah. to be in? And now he's like, I want to help bring in the new generation. I guess. I feel like a person like this has enough money. Like, uh, uh, going back to the Royal Tenenbaums, I don't know if that's allowed in this segment, but uh, Wes Anderson was talking about how uh, his co-writer, his his common co-writer, Owen Wilson, was just in blockbuster after blockbuster. And I don't think it's because of the money. I think it's because, look at my name in light. You know, that's what kept it's fun. Owen Wilson away. It's a lore. And you can at only this... get it while the getting's good. So like, yeah. you, ha- you can't decide how much it's you want to do. Away. You just have to do whatever you can while you can. I mean, they're essentially running backs, right? Like, eventually, even though it's not, like, their legs or their physicality, it's going to go away, and then you can't have it again. Um, But, yeah, like, uh, Judd Apatow is another big person who was, like, directing and writing is hard. I don't want to do it anymore. I think I'm just... And he was never an actor. It's just, like, I think I want to, like, bring up new people. Like, I think that's what becomes the interest. Does it make you guys sad? So, in the last 10 years, there's been three movies a couple of us have liked. Does it that make you sad that like it does seem like the Ben Stiller era is, is done? Uh, the, I mean, and the other thing too is that he was so like counterculture, you know that that's the the most fleeting thing, even more than the legs of a running back or like your star, like how much you can, how long you can be a star. It's at a certain point you lose that ability to be culture. counterculture. Is he the Green Day of alt comedy? He's the Green Bomb of alt comedy. Oh, that's a great comparison, actually, though. Like. Imagine Green Day comes out with a new album right now. There's, you're not definitely going to check it out, right? But I am definitely going to check it out. Yeah, Ryan has listened to the one. <laughs> uh, Greg, I didn't know this until recently. There was a Green Day album that came out this year that only And Ryan it's fantastic. To. No. <laughs> Thank you for buying our albums. Okay, that's Blink-182. So, I mean, if you're going to... That was American Idiot. Get it right. Don't want to be an American Idiot. <laughs> okay, but it was American Idiot sung by Tom DeLonge. You guys are both so being American just... Idiots. Waffle. So, do we have the mountain? Do we, we have do. a quorum? Uh, Ryan, 
I forgot your name for a second. Please <laughs> uh, uh, read Ben Stiller? the Ben Stiller. Would you get would you, Mount Rushmore? You really call me Ben Stiller? Ben uh, Ben Stiller. <laughs> you were just doing so many chops. Your Ben Stiller, Mount Rushmore, is Ted from There's Something About Mary. Better off Ted. White Goodman from Dodgeball. Uh, that's Better a surprise. Uh, yeah. Greg Fokker from the Fokker series of movies, the parent meet, meeting parents, whatnot, and Zoolander from the Zoolander series of movies. Are there any surprises on there, or is that just like, yeah, obvious? I think it's pretty chalk. I think the only one that was a surprise, or like the only one up in the air is White Goodman, but it replaced Chaz, and I do think that we did a good job of saying Royal Tenenbaums is not as big of a deal to the world as it is to us. Right, and White Goodman represents heavyweights, represents the nurse from Billy Madison, yeah, Hubie Halloween, represents Tony Wonder. Anytime Ben Stiller has facial hair, he's dodgeball. <laughs> uh, that is Ben Stiller's career retrospective, and uh, guys, I fucking love Ben Stiller. I do too, I will say. Hey, Ben, I know you're listening. I love you, Ben. Yeah, can Red Hour produce this podcast? Because we are looking we are hemorrhaging money right now <laughs> when we bad robot back, just left us we'll let you know well he tried to fit lens flares in on a podcast and that is hard to pull off when we come back more royal bombs. taste buds Though it's his third movie, The Royal Tenenbaum seems to sort of set the stage for that Anderson style, the symmetrical bold colors, monotone delivery, fairy tales he's now so well known for. Is Anderson able to give the movie and the characters an emotional heft that makes Royal Tenenbaums more than just the highest tweet per second comedy of all time? <laughs> Shit. Okay, so you want us to talk about like the characters and the dialogue, but also his direction style and the backgrounds and the colors. Everything and, Anderson comes. And the setting. <laughs> All right. I didn't say setting. Fuck New York. Well, I would like to. Say I feel like setting. New York is like a like another kid. Don't don't Ryan. Don't, don't do. Wait, don't. hang on. I feel like the house. Okay. Still, still terrible. <laughs> I feel like Buckley. The. Uh. <laughs> uh, let's start with the house though, because this is uh, almost cartoon style. And when I say that, I in when we're talking about films. I'm talking like capital F films. I'm talking about uh, sort of like uh, storybook style. Mm-hmm. This is a house that should and could not exist. This house would be worth tens of millions of dollars if it was, and yet still it, fucking sucks. in New York. Why is the <laughs> but, kitchen so? Do you like the kit? That's oh yeah. <laughs> well, I can only imagine that that is one of seven kitchens. It has to kitchens, be right, and that's the smallest. Yeah, one. yeah. They have a ballroom. Yeah, but even yeah. the ba- blitz. They did a blitz. Even the ballroom sucks it okay it's it's what? nice to have a big ball what does that mean? okay the the ceilings are it's like 11 foot ceilings you can't have a ballroom the, and then have the ceilings be that low here's what i mean by cartoon though or or fable, you don't live in a ballroom like, like uh, or children's I, was, I just thought you were hoity-toity i was just uh, for the, the listeners i did look straight up to honestly check my the ceilings. ceilings in your apartment are higher than the ceilings in that ballroom that's a shitty ballroom audience, I'm sorry. i'll get back to you in one second as soon as they're done <laughs> all right we're back uh audience what i was trying to say is that uh the house seems like it's almost bugs bunny level can pull a room out of anywhere anytime mm-hmm. it wants and that's sort of what makes it like this living breathing thing there's no way that anyone can afford that even in your 35th right. year uh but uh no matter where they are there's a different room for whatever they need. And it's because Wes Anderson needs to be like, shit, I really, I've got a good script. I've got good actors, but I got to do some set dressing. And that is a thing that was like, it was there in Rushmore. Uh, 
not so much a bottle rocket, but Aaron Rushmore. But I think Royal Tenenbaums blew it up into this thing that stayed for his entire career. Of I want the background to feed nonstop information to the foreground. You know what's a, what's yeah, weird the- though? It, a house is a three dimensional space. He doesn't in this movie either. He doesn't understand or he doesn't embrace three dimensional spaces. He's addicted to like two dimensional spaces. And so he refigures this house as a series of two dimensional right. rather than three dimensional spaces. Give me like a walking through the house scene, but instead it's I don't like think a that's true though. Moving across no, one dimension of it. I think I don't I don't think that's true at all. I think that he is doing it, but you have to you have to look at it like when Margot, I guess in the beginning, built that diorama of we don't we're just gonna show you what we have right now. You know? And that's sort of like when you're a kid, you build these dioramas because you can only think of, you can only see what you think about, and so that's how it works to too. To me, the whole so, movie although we feels do- like a diorama. It feels like the sets are conspicuously oh, sure. like dioramas themselves, which are like really they're they're faux three dimensional spaces. They're really just two dimensional spaces, but you can't actually because you can't actually move through the third dimension. It just appears. But that's that it's his. There. That's like if this is setting his deal. That is, there so many of his frames look like paintings in that way. The Grand Budapest. Hotel has so many moments like that. Moonrise Kingdom does as well. I feel well. like Grand Budapest Hotel, though, actually puts the camera like behind a character and walks through in a three-dimensional way the space. I feel like the movie doesn't employ that dimension. This, this, but I guess it, that, that freezing and looking at it—that is uh, Mishima's brought up earlier, and that's the the moments that were in Mishima's books uh, are obvious, yeah. and that's this whole thing is a book, and so it feels flat. You it doesn't feel like an accident. It feels on purpose. And not flat in a bat in a derogatory way. Yeah, I mean, it's conspicuous enough to be a choice. I just, I, I wonder if it's the right choice. Ryan? You yeah, can say I, don't. <laughs> don't talk. <laughs> Let me, is what I was trying to say. Uh, you, don't, you don't have that sort of brain when you're reading a book. You know, like, you just don't have that, like, Aaron Sorkin walking around stuff. You just have, like, this sort of flat surface that barely has a background in it that's what we see in pictures that are drawn in children's book but more importantly that's that's what we see in the pictures that children draw i think that's what he was mostly going for is that this is a movie made not for children but by children and it's not like he he like he wants uh the goonies to make a movie you know the goonies is obviously a movie that is made about children by old old men who uh, like do not understand (laughs) children this is a More movie than bias, I think is what yeah, call it. it's fubis. But this is a movie that is made by somebody who really understands how children's brains work. I think you could tell that not just by how it's shot, but how how children are treated. Like they are, they are the best. That the supreme race or the supreme being of this movie is children, and that's why we have that. That's why all children's pictures that are in books or that they draw. It's just front and center. Here is the thing that we're looking at front and center. They don't know how to put something in a different part of this, uh, the paper that they're drawing on. That's why every fucking thing that we see, everything that's important, is direct front and center of the screen, which is literally against the rules of how you're supposed to make movies. How about the scene with um, Ethelene and um, um, Royal where he says that he's sick? I thought that scene was interesting because the camera is, I would say, Ryan, there, like center mounted on the the image, but uh, it stays there for the entire scene in a way that, like, I noticed. I think more this time because of the piano teacher and the fact the piano teacher never cut and never moved the camera um, in a movie that 
Royal Tenenbaums has a lot of cuts and has a lot of like camera movement. Uh, a lot of it conspicuous and obviously like you know the camera moving in on people's faces and everything. But that one scene is extremely still and kind of off center. Although the camera is centered on like the I would say like the average of the center of the of the action of the scene. Right. So what you're you've been talked into this thing where now everything is different. So now the things that you are expecting from movies it reverses. And so that stands out instead of Gwyneth Paltrow coming out of a bus, walking directly towards the camera that now doesn't seem weird. And now when a thing is shot like a normal movie, that now seems weird. And that's a lot to do for 10 seconds, especially because you have to assume that your average Royal Tenenbaum watcher has not seen the first two movies. Yeah. What what do you think is gained or lost by Anderson breaking the rules of filmmaking to the point that you never forget you're watching a movie? That it's closer to a like a fable, you yeah. know. I think that it's part that like it's just part of a children's book that we are now in and not just reading. A- and I know that like Alec Baldwin is here and the tops of uh, a lot of book chapters are here, but I think that he doesn't just say like that's all we'll do. I think he sticks to that thing the entire time. I think also the movie makes right. a, a promise that you like you are in a you are in an artificial world and I'm going to be gentle with you. I think like, you know, it's, you're entering into a different territory. And part of that is like the, the overriding consciousness of this universe is going to protect you. And that was really welcome after the piano teacher, which is the exact opposite is true. Like this universe will be indifferent towards you indifferent and then like tending towards actually inducing pain in you. And again, what is the, what is the only thing that takes you out of this world? That's going to be comfortable taxi cabs that are the most beat up disgusting rusted bullshit taxi cabs of i've ever seen before you know that's the only way for you to get out of this fable is for you to like get on this disgusting horse and then get out of the world is that him trying to say there are real world issues going on this is real new york it's these people created their own fable you're not just watching a fable yeah i mean like i think it's like it's pleasantville sort of you know like uh where in pleasantville when you drove to the end of the street you just started at the other side of the city you know it's just that one street this is what's at the end of main street uh, if you just get into this dirty cab then you can leave this perfect world that has been created for you and that's why margo reacts like that is that like i didn't know that we could go back I thought that we had to get in this rusty ass taxi and move on, and now she's invited back. That's why Richie, you know, went on to fame and then just said, "Oh, I'll just get in this boat then," because I'm I'm far away from this house, and when you're in the house, you get in the rusty taxi cab and you get driven far away. I noticed you don't think that young Richie Great. has like obviously a number of of interests. He likes like semaphore, and he likes ham radio, and he likes the sea, and he likes cars. But I noticed that as he grows up, he gets like transfigured into just this like grotesque of jest tennis. And I guess that's the part that kind of reminded me of Infinite Jest, the, the, his fascination with tennis. But uh, it like it was interesting to see the way in which his character gets like diminished over time. Adult life like forces him into the mold of being just one thing and removing him from being like the complexity right. that he had been. Well, yeah, it, I mean, it's, it's, it's that, but it's also that all, for all three of them. They all moved into this part of the life where it's like it's uh, racing forward with the fact that you were young geniuses, and then you're in the you know you're in the like the the height of it. It reminds me of Magnolia, and, like when he used to be. I used yeah, to be a sure. genius when I was a kid. Now I'm just dumb, <laughs> but with no self reflection. Yeah, <laughs> and I think that uh, 
Anderson is saying that like that's not that's not the good part of life. What what is the good part of life is whenever that's all over, when you can look back and then you know say like, and now I'm going to grow from here. That's what we're watching. Is I already peaked, and that's actually not that important anymore. What I'm going to do is self reflect, and that's that's the movie that we get. The good part of life is when you can get your grandkids and just try to get them hit by cars in the middle of the street. Dude, that was was that it was, was that so the- innocuous until then. It was like it was like oh, let's push over yeah. a trash can, let's steal let's some ice funnings. cream, like and then like they. I, I almost thought they had to do tricks. There's one part where Gene Hackman almost got hit by a fucking. Van. I mean, it could like it, it stops like an inch away from him. So, do you think Anderson there is is saying there is like three stages of life? Is there childhood, adulthood, re childhood? No, I think that what he's saying is that. Uh, Get to the self-reflective part, right? So, like, Gene Hackman never got there. And so, even though that uh, the three kids and Gene Hackman are all a generation apart, they're all hitting this part, this this specific part of life of, like, hey, let's look right. back and see that, like, maybe we didn't do it right. Maybe we made some mistakes. Or, more importantly, maybe we shot through it. Maybe we sort of, like, rested on our laurels and just, like, uh, shot through time instead of being like, fuck, man. I- I was kind of an asshole. I was kind of stupid. I was kind of relying on my talents instead of like actually thinking about stuff. I think it's also like about that you can grow up at any time and it doesn't have to be the dire, terrible version of growing up. That that's not that's not the real thing. That there is actually a good real version of growing up and it's about being accountable and uh actually like being yourself in front of the people you love and having them love the real you and not like the projection of you. And so I think that it's like at any moment you can do that. Even if you're a 70 year old child, you can still grow up and it's not a tragedy. It's a good thing because when you grow up, it's going to be like a, a place of full acceptance. Do you, do you think all of them get to there or only Richie does? No, I think, uh, I think they, I think they all get there. It's a hundred percent. Yeah. It's 100%. They all cross the finish line. <laughs> I mean, to they have all achieve like, at the same moment. They look into each other's they, eyes and they all cross the line at the same time. I mean, that's romance. <laughs> the Chaz line at the end that like, you know, the, like the memorable Chaz line of I've had a rough year dead, which is hard for me to say with just talking about it without crying. Um, I think like that's a big one. But also Chaz lands on the gravel next to Eli and they have a conversation after Chaz was about to kill Eli for almost killing his sons. Like mm-hmm. that's a big moment that they have. They all come to some conclusion of like, oh, fuck, uh, growing up and in the way that Wes Anderson wants to tell us, this self-reflection is the most important part. And when Chaz, right. when Chaz sees that like Eli is sort of doing it too right now, that that's Eli's I've had a rough uh, year, Dad, moment. Mm-hmm. And so now Chaz doesn't want to kill him anymore. We all just want to get all of our loved ones to that point. And that's why Chaz is okay being on the ambulance, holding his dad's hand, in the end of the movie, is because they have passed that point. And I, he's not going to freak... I think those characters... He's not gonna, He's not going to forgive him for all the shit. He's just going to sort of forget for a second because they move past that point. Sorry, Greg. Uh, I, I I think also I noticed watching it like, is it crazy to be like Eli Cash and Charlie Chaz? Like Cash and Chaz are very similar names and they seem to be on like a very similar kind of journey and their journey's actually a butt right in that one like crazy cathartic moment where Ben Stiller just throws him over the wall. yeah i think i think there's something very interesting about one sibling uh interacting with another sibling's best friend 
because they're so siloed. So it's, I don't think this movie digs into this this well, but it's all, it feels like you're fighting your replacement. Like at some point, Richie and Chaz were best friends and Eli then was there and this is them taking that out on each other. But I mean, they, they do work together as well because Chaz is jealous of Richie's wanting to be a Tenenbaum. You know, like that's how they're separated is that... Eli's. Oh yeah, I'm sorry. Chaz is jealous of Eli's wanting to be a Tenenbaum because everyone wants to be a Tenenbaum except for Chaz. Eli wants it the most and this is sort of the connection they have. And it happens twice. The movie's sort of kind of bookended by it because uh we have the end thing and then we have the beginning thing where um richie and eli are on the same bb gun team (laughs) you know like they make sure to point out that Chaz and eli are against each other there and not only i do i think that's important but i also think it's important to point out that kids should not be shooting bbs at each other like that is a fucking bad game Um if you do one pump, if you do one pump, it's fine. It's when Gene Hackman, who is doing clearly multiple pumps, pump, you pump, can't pump. do that. If everybody, you could shoot somebody with one pump on the BB gun, but when you're breaking skin, that's multiple pumps. He's an adult; he should know that. One more thing I learned from the commentary is is that it's the speed round. Air horns are good. What did you learn from the commentary? Um, that we'll allow it. Andrew Wilson, Luke, and Owen's brother got shot by their dad right in the hand with a BB. And so when it cuts to Chaz's hand of the BB right between the knuckles, that's just his fucking knuckle nice. that has a literal BB right nice. in there. Nice. Oh, I love putting real fucking parental issues in your movie. There are no teams. <laughs> and then laugh. Yeah. And then laugh. Like, hey, I'm doing my job as a dad. I'm teaching you a lesson right now. Uh, growing up, before we get to this beer round, uh, I'd go to a, uh, my best friend growing up. He, there'd be a giant 4th of July block party at his house every year and there was a giant water fight between his household's party and his neighbor's household party his neighbor's household party was mostly adults his was mostly kids an adult took the gutter water and then sprayed it right into my eyes so there was pebbles and stuff in it and for years would bring up that i was a little baby who cried (laughs) and ended that year's water fight (laughs) that i just realized i had my own royal tenenbaum in that fucking asshole I don't know if you guys had this, but me and my brother would do that same thing, not with BB guns, but with squirt guns. And then we'd look up to where our dad was, should be, and then uh, there was just a ghost because he was dead. But then the ghost dad would have a BB gun and he'd shoot you? <laughs> no, he would just eat a ton of hot dogs. What is it with ghosts and eating an entire hot dog cart full of hot dogs? Ghosts love hot dog carts. Anything from carts. Is it falafel? Is it hot dogs? Is it shawarma? Ghosts love it. Not kettle It corn, is, though. like we said... There's no kettle corn. Is this popcorn? No, crack. kettle corn. Get the fuck out of it. What the hell are you doing? This my kids go to school on this street, you animal. There's no kettle corn in right. baseball. Why isn't this movie called the Ethylene Talon Bombs? Yeah. See, uh, we had a whole segment about how Margo is not represented, which I think is bullshit. Like, I think Margo is one of the most important characters. Ethylene. She is the one who I definitely could have used more of, and I could I could have used more of her just kissing dudes. I have not slept with a man in 18 years. And then watching her and Danny Glover try to remember how to kiss uh-huh. was adorable. I know that Gwyneth Paltrow is obviously like probably the star of the beauty Olympics of this movie or whatever. But I, my viewing of this time, I come away with thinking Angelica Houston is the most beautiful woman that is maybe... Do you know she, she portrayed beauty in my favorite film of all time? Is that true? Beauty and the Beast? Stealing Beauty. No, it's Captain EO. Tyler, actually. When Michael Jackson in the film Captain EO turns the robot into beauty, it's Angelica Houston, who is the representation of beauty. Yeah, uh, so I watched Royal Tenenbaums, and the next night I watched Adam's Family Values. Uh, 
should Angelica Houston have won every award ever? She, she's, she's so amazing. Insanely talented. She's beautiful, has always been beautiful. Uh, uh, she, why don't he, people love her more? If you read reviews from like the 80s about like, because her dad is like an all time yeah, like, Hall of Fame director, yeah. right? And so then everybody was like, oh, you just get a job because that's who your dad because of how fat and ugly you are. You are fat and ugly and disgusting. And that is what she got to start her career. Wow. And that's not who I know. Who I know is, yeah, uh, Morticia, who is, the, sent me through a thing when I was a yeah, kid. Yeah, the definition wow. of. Yeah, she did. The definition of sending you through a thing? The definition of like, you know, uh, like, cause it's not just, that she, it's not just that she's attractive. It's that she always has like this power behind her beauty mm-hmm. uh, and like a hyper competence that like almost every character that she plays has, but is most apparent in ethylene. Like she is the, f- she seems to be the font of genius for this group. It's he's the font of like Roy is the font of like caddishness, but she's the font of like actual genius. She's like the God spark. Back when we were all watching Transparent, do you guys remember that? Mm-hmm. Before, I do. Before we realized that uh, it's fucked up. Yeah, she, two seasons. Then she, out. she came in like halfway through the second or third season and just owned the room. Just like she has a pre- like she has a Jack Nicholson mm-hmm. who was her former boyfriend like presence of just like eh, you guys are trying to act and that's cool, but I have a presence. Why the monotone for ninety percent of the characters? Like their like uh, their tone of voice. Because they're yeah, disaffected. Wes Anderson, dude. If, if yeah, you're not yeah. Chaz and you're not Royal, yeah. you're Because they're disaffected, that, hyper, hyper That's super funny. That's Is there just, a reason Chaz and Royal are not like that? Well, I mean, I think that Chaz and Royal aren't, are, are like that for a lot of the time. And I think when they're not like that, it's super hilarious. Chaz is, Chaz freaks out a couple of times a little bit. But when Chaz, fuck, guys. When I. When Royal is like trying to like endear himself back to the family, and Chaz walks through the room, and Royal sticks out his hand, and Chaz fully bent Stillers all over the hand and slaps <laughs> it four or five times, like because that seems so weird in a Wes Anderson movie, you know? Like right. everyone is monotone right. and disaffected, and, Chaz, and so for him to do that is insane. Chaz is the most street smart of the kids, and Royal is really—he was a lawyer, but he's like a, a street smart character. He's not—he doesn't have that like you know, super, like, I know how to speak Latin, and so I don't care about the world anymore on Wii. But, I mean, like, I've seen Bruce Willis and Edward Norton do Wes Anderson dialogue it perfectly, you know? Like, it's just, it's a thing that you get into. Uh, Danny Glover, even though he's, like, the only normal person in this movie, he still has that way about how he speaks, mm-hmm. which is, it's just a Wes Anderson movie. Does this movie come dangerously close to glamorizing depression and suicide? Yeah, I, I no. think that I think that there is a little like I don't think that it is a worry that we need to have or that like you know it's gonna be he's gonna cause some big social ill. But I think that there is a certain cool factor to the 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 suicide scene. I think that Wes Anderson knows how to shoot cool as far as Wes Anderson goes. I feel like that like based on like watching. Scorsese and Godard and all the movies that like basically created Wes Anderson, we know that when he wants something to be cool, it's Gwyneth Paltrow coming out of a bus, right? Like that we now we know. Like film has taught us that that is cool. I do not get that aspect from when he's trying to oh, actually really? like, be dark. I think it's like so, like the the music right. is so driving, and he's like the way he's like so centered in the frame, and the way he goes from being shaggy to like looking so beautiful. 
and Shorn and then the conspiratorial tomorrow I'm going to kill myself. Like the it gets I, I think he like takes the off ramp maybe by having him lying there with his like the blood and all the hair and everything. But I think that there is certainly this moment of like, I don't know, intense sort of like self-reflection that is like a, a, a form of glorification of it. Well, I, I think that's you said that off ramp, but it's it's the escalation. I think self reflection is good. The shaving your head and face in the mirror is a good physical representation of the self reflection. And then there's the going too far, wrapping back around to slitting your wrists, and then dropping it, and that's when it gets ugly. So it like pushes it back. Like this is, I guess this is cool because it is a good healthy thing to do. And then you just keep pushing it, and it's gross, and you need help. Is, does, should art even be worried about that glorifying it, or should art can art just be, art it up? With this one particular issue, it it I guess gives me pause more than others. I think ultimately, foundationally, it's not art's responsibility to like behave in such a way that, that doesn't cause mass panics because those usually are not actually very valid. But it does seem like there's something slightly different with glorifying suicide suicidal ideation. I'm gonna I'm gonna create a new theory right now. It's called Charles Barkley theory, and I feel right. like that uh, Charles Barkley saying "I am not your role model." I think that's a good line because hey, Charles, before that, nobody thought you were, <laughs> but he was famous enough. Remember what Charles Barkley fam- would do, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> he was famous enough where like we at least heard his name. I think that if you're making mainstream movies, I definitely do think it's something that you have to consider. If you're gonna make movies that only play on the walls of museums in cities that uh, don't have that big of a population, then no, I don't think you have to care about it. I think that if... And I'm not saying that Wes Anderson was not concerned about it. I think that if you're making mainstream movies or if you're making albums that a lot of people have access to, then you that is something that you do have to consider. You hear that, Lana Del Rey? What does death represent in this film? It, I mean, it, it feels like it depends on what aspect of, of death you're talking about because like we were just talking about that scene with Richie and that brush with death is as much a form of, of birth for him. And it comes at a moment where a lot of people are experiencing these sunderings that are actually a form of birth, like Royal getting kicked out of the house and being discovered. That's the best thing that happens for Royal or for anybody else in the movie. Really? It's a, it's a death, but it's a release from an, a, a, a bad outmoded way of being in a, a, a rebirth I- into a new way of being. Let's be honest real quick. Helen Tenenbaum, who Margot got her middle name about, uh, or named after. It's uh, a trick. You don't probably, have a middle name. She was probably not cool. I bet Helen Tenenbaum was, like, she fucking sucked, right? But she died, and now we're all supposed to respect I her. I feel like there's something in the movie that they don't really talk about that, but it's alluded to. When he said, when Danny, when Henry says, I don't think you're a, a I don't think you're an asshole. I think you're a son of a bitch. Yeah, yeah, like that's yeah. There, that feels like a callback to something. So far, we've only seen him being like weirdly reverential of his mother. But was she Which, supposed? Son to... of a bitch is a good insult because I'm avoiding insulting yeah, you. Yeah, and I'm insulting but your this mom woman. Is a fucking oh. straight up bitch. Interesting. I just took that as that's a funny thing to say. But you think it's saying? More but no, about I mean how... her her portrait above the fireplace is straight up Trump family, right? Yeah, it's grim. And, it's a grim visage. <laughs> and the fact that. Uh, the way that Royal was raised and acts now and then respects her makes me think that, like, sh- he went through some shit. It was quasi-abusive. I, well, well, I mean, what kind of people but never grow up? It tends to be people that are damaged as children. And the only way that to be respected by Royal is to fucking die. And that's what I think the movie's saying. And then we have this new generation of, hey, no, Richie, don't die. 
the way to be respected is to not die. That's right. the way to do it. I think real literal death in this is shown as meaningless. People want to find meaning behind it. And so they do things like say like died heroically saving his family from a... <laughs> he says, the best I, I want my epitaph to say but that. ultimately i think real literal death in this is meaningless and that's what we're supposed to take away from life is what has the meaning death is just this thing that's going to come and like turn out our lights one day but we shouldn't think of more of it I, than that that's my actual I, favorite royal moment is when he looks at that epitaph and he says i yeah. want my epitaph to say that and but uh, saying like i will do nothing yeah. <laughs> to have people write that on my epitaph. I just wish people would. Like, that is royal Seriously? in a nutshell. I, I like what you said, Greg, more at the beginning of it, where you're like, it depends on the death, because for death to be meaningless in this, does that take any power out of Chaz's wife's death? No, because, okay, her. Uh, I would say it's not that her death doesn't matter to him. She mattered to him. And so now her absence matters to him, obviously. But the death itself, it didn't mean anything. It didn't, like, it, it, it is... Ultimately, it's just the end of her story, and so that part is is like important. Her absence is important, but I think it- her death meant a lot to me because she was a very attractive woman. <laughs> What's the wild javelina represent? That wild spirit of royals, right? Like the the whooping it up, the going out there and getting in go karts, the mama pajama in, right? The rolling out of bed, the going to the police station. <laughs> <laughs> Now, we all know that Buckley dies at the end. What this question presupposes is maybe Maybe he didn't, didn't, right? Like, they don't move the car in the time of the movie, so maybe he's just down there taking a little nappy poo. That's what I think. Then there's no ending. Like, they make it clear that... Thanks, Dr. uh, Manhattan. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I'm just going to sit on this pink stump, and I'm going to think for a while. While my balls are uh, out. And it seems like I'm thinking about big things, but really I'm just thinking, my balls are just out. My balls are out. It is cold. Could, wait, do you think somebody <laughs> can see my balls right now? <laughs> is there a Martian? What's the uh, what's the thing, Greg, if like I'm a D&D character and I've got like a little little owl next to me? What's that called? Familiar. Yeah. A familiar. The movie makes it clear that there are familiars and maybe even more than that. Uh, the movie makes it clear that uh, Buckley is the mom. Right, and there is no way right. for the family to move on until Buckley is until dead, Buckley and that sucks. Shit. That sucks that Buckley had to die because Buckley, by the way, uh, at, at some somehow looks six months old and fourteen years yeah. old and is adorable <laughs> the entire that's time. I love the brother. way when they hit the road and he's hanging out the window as well. Oh man, that's uh-huh. the best Buckley moment for me when he's like action hanging out the window. Bloodhounds don't crack is what they say. Why Why all the Christmas music in the background when it never seems to be Christmas? The it's not Christmas music. What? It's not Christmas music. It's nostalgia. It's it like I don't think that the first thing that we think of when we hear that is Christmas. I think it's the first thing that we think of when we hear that is childhood. I think and nowadays... It's Charlie Brown Christmas music? I think music? nowadays... Yeah. It's the, I think the Charlie Brown thing right. had a, reassert, or a resurgence since this movie came out, and I think it now feels more like Christmas than it would have... Back when this movie first came out. But when you hear that bling, 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 bling uh, then you bling. all of a sudden revert and you don't even know you're doing like you're the arms on your hairs are reverting, but you're not, you know, like all of a sudden you're feeling weird. And then we go back to an ice cream shop with just your a f- first boner. <laughs> I was going to say butterscotch Sunday, but your first butterscotch boner. I, I don't know what gave you your first boner. 
These people love writing books, huh? Yeah. Man, nothing easier. You can be crazy, your whole life falls apart. Nothing easier than just sitting down and just hammering out a little book, right? Easiest thing in the world to do, yeah. Makes you feel like a real yeah. piece of shit for if not you don't, so far, like, Say you don't have a few <laughs> books. Wow, why not? Like, it seems like it's pretty fucking I, easy. I will say this, though. And this goes out to everybody in the audience and, I think, to these characters. Uh, 50 pages. If you can write 50 pages of a book... And on page 51, it is blank pages from there until 300. No one will ever know. (laughs) They will never find out the fact that you wrote 50 pages of a book and you made it As you guys are watching this, were you constantly looking to see what page the movie was on? Yeah. Yeah. I was like, oh, we're like 161. Okay, we're like halfway through at this point. (laughs) I always thought it was 420, bro. Last question of speed round. Does all the Margo foot stuff bug Ryan? What about when she turns off the TV with her foot? She's so adorable in that scene. It's so but, when her. Oh, yeah. I wasn't going to say. <laughs> so who's weirder then? Be your bike. I was just going to say, she's like such a little kid when her mom is like, this isn't very safe. And she's like, it's tied to the radiator. She like is <laughs> so obviously still 12 years old in that scene. You know what else is tied to the radiator? My gag reflex. What the fuck are we doing here? <laughs> That's all the time we have. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, it's award season. Taste Buds, it is award season. And uh, as we previously mentioned, the Royal Tenenbaums did receive a nomination for Best Screenplay from the Oscars. Uh, did not win. And it received a Golden Globe for Best Actor in a Comedy for Gene Hackman, who did not go because that's Hackman style, <laughs> baby. Uh, but what we're going to do is give it all the awards it deserves. I actually, I had nominated Spirit Away for a couple of these. Is that going to be a problem? I guess we'll see. Uh, uh, it's going to be weird. Moan for it, maybe you get it. Doesn't that it. sound like Rivers Cuomo ejaculating? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, it does. Uh, let's kick it off with best Alec Baldwin line delivery, Greg. Okay. So when I saw this as an award, I was like, Man, I don't rem- like. I just don't remember mm-hmm. a really good reading. So I literally watched the movie one entire time, just hunting for Alec Baldwin great moments. And here's what I'm gonna say: the narrator, for those who, yes. for some reason, have listened to this whole show <laughs> and have not watched the movie yet, we are gonna provide this one bit of context. Uh, and here's what I'm going to say: and it is 100% a cop out. Alec Baldwin has the chance to come in here and ham it up and try to say, "Hey, I know you can't see my face, but I'm still in this fucking movie." And he opts not to do that and he blends kind of into the background and i don't think that there he has one standout line reading i think he does a Which, wonderful job of not getting in the way of what else is going on let's keep in mind that the narration was not live i bet on the cutting room floor there's so many times where alec baldwin was like nobody would do that 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 fucking bitch get over yeah, there he got drunk talk and to your <laughs> wife some voicemails for look his daughter pigs look at these pigs, look at these little, <laughs> little little pigs. Uh, a fun tidbit I learned is that he based his like inflection and character uh, of Jack Donaghy on Royal Tenenbaum. Is that true? Yeah. Oh my gosh. I don't really see it. I guess a besuited piece of shit. You know, I think probably that it starts there and then it, it grew into something completely different. I can see it being like mm. the same seed, but obviously it's a very different looking tree. Ryan? Wait, Greg. Is it what little was yours? pigs on the credit cutting room floor? Greg said none of them. Yeah, or all of them. I said I, I said that there's not one Greg standout said, reading. Uh, Ryan, okay. please take this award away. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is right away. This is towards the beginning of the movie, but it's uh, he started buying real estate in his early teens, 
and seem to have an almost preternatural understanding of international finance. And it's <laughs> finance, finance, but he said finance, and I was like, Alec Baldwin, you've done it again. Ryan. Yeah, saying that word that way uh, will make me hate you and laugh every step of the way. Can I go Best- for Greg real quick? Please go for Greg. For Greg, it's... Uh, go for Greg. It's when uh, Royal says, uh, this has been the best six days of my life. And then Alec Baldwin says, and then he realized it was true. And I feel like that also invented Ron Howard on Arrested Development. <laughs> I was going to say my next tidbit. Uh, yep. Uh, Mitch Hurwitz saw this movie and went, I guess I'll stop writing that thing I've been writing. And then a couple years later went, fuck that. I'm going to keep writing it. But I do think the narrator was based on this. And then Royal realized what he was saying is true. That's a big... That's a, Yeah. Good. Good <laughs> good job, movie. Your magical musical moment of the week. Let's start with Ryan. All right. This is hard. And I'm not going to go through all of my nominations, of which there Please were don't. many, because Greg you still has to go. You a bunch of points, do you? Um, but I do. I had to eventually <laughs> decide on... And here's what I'm into, right? Here's what I'm into. Um, when uh, Royal walks into a room and we can hear it's very quiet and he's like no Chaz I'm just going to take your boys out for a little bit he's like what what are you talking about you better protect them he's like of course I will and then and then it cuts to Simon Garfunkel singing me and Julio down at the schoolyard while they do all sorts of naughty things is and this was so close guys I again I had seven nominees for this one but this is what I have to go with this is another one where you could watch the entire movie trying to figure out what is like the right one. Uh, you didn't say it though. You want to hear what the right one is? The right one is clearly Mar- Margot getting off the the bus. Yawn. Uh, you can feel as conflicted as you want to about the Margot character, and I opt to. Uh, but one thing that cannot be denied is that the experience of watching her descend the bus is like only matched by every time I see my wife's face. Oh my god. Uh. <laughs> that's, that's Greg. The fact that that's I could Greg's be sweet theory. to her and upset you guys in equal measure is just really making my day over here. But to be fair, every time you're sweet to the two of us, you upset her a lot. Yeah, yeah that's, she that's, also gets mad. <laughs> uh, so th- there was one uh, special bonus mic award. Uh, you perfectly lined up with what I thought, and I uh, gotta say, Ryan. Ryan. Uh, anytime something is directly on the nose, it's against the the, the repetition of it's against it's the law against while the they law. are breaking the law <laughs> uh, was so endearing. Uh, and it's all like childhood pranks and law breaking. I, I think me and Julia down by the schoolyard. Can we stop real quick, though? Because this is such a good award. Uh, neither one of us gave it to Elliot Smith, which is, I think, the most, most obvious answer. Is that Richie's suicide? Richie's suicide. Yeah, I think that's the, that's or the most I obvious one. Or I had the... the Hey Jude, when Mordecai the instrumental Hey Jude, yeah. where and then the fucking the bird flies away and then yeah. the music blasts into effect uh, and then we also have like that trumpet, uh, that clarion trumpet. Yeah, and then uh, the Rolling Stones hitting it hard when uh, Margot opens the tent and Richie is laying there. Mm-hmm. There's but then even t- we brought it up earlier. Even the the Christmas time is here again by Charlie yeah. Brown. Like that is it's not by Charlie Brown. <laughs> by Charlie, no, yeah, Charlie, by Charlie Brown, Brown, Brown and the Peanuts. <laughs> yeah, they sang it. <laughs> Charlie Brown, Peanuts mm-hmm. too. is here. <laughs> Snoopy Dog, Woodstock burned. <laughs> Wait, I'm sorry. Part of the lyrics are Snoopy died, Woodstock burned. <laughs> Snoopy said, <laughs> "Yep." 
<laughs> yes. And what is your cringe moment, Greg? Uh, for me, it is all the the racism is bad. You can quote me on that. <laughs> Bold, uh, but there's this fucking brave. This part where Royal turns to Richie and says, "What do you think of this big buck living up at the house?" And you see Richie be disgusted. But he doesn't say, hey, don't talk about my friend Henry that way. He just countenances it, countenances it. And that's what I think might be wrong with this movie. It's not that this movie does anything so super duper racist itself. Just let those it, old people be them. It just kind of, yeah, it kind of sees racism and then it just goes like, oh, that's not what I'm doing because I just like to wear this clever jacket, you know? <laughs> <laughs> they all do have great jackets. They do. Every, they do. It's a movie about jackets. Like Bargo's like, I'm going to wear this polo t-shirt from the 70s, but it's a dress now. And a big fur coat. That's just how she goes about town. I'll just wear this slip as a dress. Ryan? Uh, I think this one's obvious for everyone, for everybody but that's not you two. Uh, everybody that's in the world that is not you two. Uh, just because Margot uh, lost one of her fingers, and that's wooden, she decides that she's going to do everything with her feet. For a solid portion of the movie, she unlocks doors, she turns off TVs, she fucking walks on her feet down the stairs... No, That's true. use your hands. See, I think you're being a bleist, Ryan. <laughs> I didn't even put that together that there's a character reason she does that. I thought Wes Anderson was just like, you know what? This is for Mikey. In no, years. she's being twee. She's being cute. She touches things with her feet. That word is ableist, right? No, it's a bleist. I can't wait for a bleist. Gl- He's and I, I probably should have waited until we're off air, but that's ableist, right? What I can't wait for Gwyneth Paltrow's ableist <laughs> biopic. See, I've... Always wondered, but like if you always the e it's before ableist. I. No, no, no. It's just it's it, ableist. It's like, ableist. It's, like yes. it's just stupid. There should be a hyphen. Yeah. Do you think that ableist is better? I'm an ableist. Well, I mean, if you look at the English language, that's how those two. Do you really think that argument works anymore? Yeah. Yes. Well, anyways, I think Greg agreed with me. I think it's ableist, Mike, and I think you should you should you should look into it. If it's if it's ableist, will I'm, you let me know? I, I will let you know. I'm sorry. I learned most words from reading because I don't interact with people. <laughs> that is uh, and or, then I know how vowels make sounds together. Or saying them on a podcast so two other people can fucking blast you out of the air. <laughs> Just put it right up on air. I recommend you shut the fuck up. Uh, nobody won for that one. You're both dickheads. Performance. <laughs> I'll go. Uh, it's so hard not to say. I remembered Greg's was racism. Greg won that I'll, one. It's so hard <laughs> not to say Gene Hackman. But you guys, I love Angelica Houston. And that scene where... He's like, I have cancer. No, I don't. Yes, I do. She, everything she's doing in that, and again, it it does. It, in part, it's because it's on the heels of having seen the piano teacher. But like that, she's doing really good work in that scene, and it's she has to do all these different things in one shot. And it, it, I, I was just really impressed with that, like the way she hits him, the way she yells at him, the way she says, "Well, which one is it?" The way she says, the first thing she says when he says, "I have cancer," she says, "Where is the doctor?" Which is just the kind of stupid thing you say in grief that doesn't make any sense because you're a stupid person and you can't really understand bad things when they happen to you. Um, <laughs> Suck at grieving people. It's just no, it is right. Like when you when something really bad happens to you, you start having the weirdest thoughts. Like, oh, I'll just tell myself to re- to look out for this. What does that mean? Yeah. It's already <laughs> it's already happened. So, Angelica Houston was my answer. Ryan. I'm not I I don't have that sort of like fortitude to not say Gene Hackman. <laughs> uh, the script get it right. The script was written around him. Uh like he wrote it and I did read today that uh if he said no, which he initially did, then it was going to go to Michael Caine and then to Gene Wilder. 
I want oh, shit. both of those cuts. I, yeah. I want I want I three want royal tenenbaums. <laughs> Everybody else the same. Drop the Mike O'Kane cut. We demand it. <laughs> Drop HBO the Max. Check it out. We want the Wilder cut. Yeah, where's Man the internet Wilder on cut. that? We want more <laughs> fucking what's his name? Zack Snyder movies and not more <laughs> Wes Anderson, Michael Caine, or Gene. Well, Gene Wilder would be. It'd be a I mean, that'd be grim. CGI. CGI. We get a little weekend at Tenenbaums. <laughs> uh, but no, uh, it's Gene Wilder, and it's because of his delivery of lines like I've said, uh, I finally want to meet my grandchildren. <laughs> uh, and it's, it's in the ice cream thing where Margot doesn't order, and he's trying to be better, but nobody will let him. And he, they're, they're in the right. They should not let him. Yeah. But she says, I have to leave in five minutes. And then he is not given dialogue. The camera cuts back to him. And he just looks sad. And we have this thing where we have to, like, even though the, our, the generation above us is terribly racist and just awful, just has no empathy for anyone, we ha- we do feel bad for them. And I think Gene Hackman kills it. He, he, I the reason the part that- where he says, what, where uh, Chaz is like, why should I forgive you? And Royal's like, because you're hurting me. <laughs> yeah. Just it's stop. affecting me right now. Yeah, stop being mad at me. It's hurting my feelings. <laughs> but I. Uh, Christ. That's white yeah. people, dude. That is white people <laughs> yeah. for sure. Stop being and mad at people. us. It's hurting our feelings. The and fact that people. the reason that they talked to Michael Caine and Gene Wilder was because G- Gene Hackman was like, I, I have nothing. I do not understand this person, <laughs> which I think makes it more like it makes it better right like i don't want somebody yeah. who like yeah. dives into the role in that way of like ha 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 like not i don't want tim Fuck allen this guy. as royal tenenbaum yeah if the core that the core not his real core not being there means there is a sweetness that can come through and that he does he is a lad and cad instead of just like an unforgivable prick and i think this this is probably uh forgetting that movie like welcome to Manetka or whatever with roy romano this is probably going to be the movie that we remember gene hackman as his last movie uh it's mooseport you dickhead welcome, welcome to, to mooseport sorry uh i think it's gene hackman Greg. remember welcome to mooseport or you get dr point <laughs> uh i think that gene hackman long been is the policy of this show <laughs> <laughs> phenomenal in this but uh maybe it's just too up my alley but and thinking about pound for pound i think houston does uh oh. less showy things that it crush and so gets the real point there as well cool i'm loving it director's signature moment ryan uh i'm just gonna say the time where i was watching the movie and i turned it off and then i farted a lot i didn't even watch the movie how about that shit but if i had to come up with a second thing it would be uh I think it's the house. I think the house sort of sets up, as I talked about before, everything that will become Wes Anderson. You know, I I agree with what you. What do you Mike. mean by the house? Like the uh, an est- the establishing shot of it, or when we first go through it, or what do you mean? All of it. I uh, yeah. I guess I pause accidentally instead of explaining it. So I guess now I'll, I'll fucking explain it. I I love Rushmore, like you said in your intro, Mike. That it is the best movie of all time. But this was the movie where we clearly found out his obsession like his addiction to the background uh where people are if you look don't just look at the character and what they're saying but look around them and that will give you everything you need to know about the character i think it all comes from this fucking house that is so fictional you know like there's no way that this house could exist there's no way that it could have this many rooms or floors or anything it's clearly on like the universal lot right (laughs) it's It's, like the fakest looking little new york lit 
But like he could like the way that he designed it, it means that he could pull a room out of nowhere and just now this is you know this is Chaz's room. I and like also, the idea, Ryan. You said that room. they like kind of almost just like appear. Like it's not like there's like a fixed floor plan. It's like they're all rooms of necessity from Harry Potter or Magically, something. Yeah. yeah, there's no way yes. that there could be. Yeah, like I, I think Harry Potter is a good example of just like, oh, I need a new room right now. Yeah, and stairs out just of the like door. Kind of like, yeah, <laughs> well, because yeah, this is like in a pretend street, and then the the Y Gene Hackman ends up living in is 357th Street, and uh, guys who haven't lived or been to New York, that's not that's not a real street. They don't go up that high. <laughs> this is all in a magical part of New York. Honestly, bringing up New York is crazy because. It seems like uh, he had like you know he had this like Scorsese New York in mind or like this bombback Woody all Woody Allen New York in mind and we just don't get that we get mm-hmm. some fucking weird version of a city that doesn't exist. It's he like doesn't, the, uh, the he magician. doesn't want any of this to exist. It's like the magicians or something. It's like this like little corner Harry Potter that exists magically somehow inside New York, which looks like something we recognize, but it isn't. Yeah. You know? For me, the the um, and I know I've been harping on the two dimensionality of the movie, but that last kind of shot of like down the street, all the way down the fire engine, and then like the moving and pausing, and each little like vignette has like a character saying something about what has happened, or like helping to summarize what's going on, or like what's next for these guys, and stopping at like each place and moving up levels, and you know now you're sitting on the fire engine, now you're standing in front of it talking to. Uh, a paramedic or something. It's just so like um, painfully composed, but not in a, not necessarily like a negative way. It's like very uh, of the moment, like very like kitschy within the, the, the moment of the movie. And it like, it feels like departing this magical land. Like Ryan was saying, it's like, you feel like the mists kind of closing behind you as, as the movie comes to a conclusion. So that last like fire truck scene. I think both of those are phenomenal answers, but I feel like I can remember in, all of his movies post this a geographical area that that has that magical feel. the The Japan of I Love Dogs is not the Japan of real reality. Right. Japan. So apparently, that accidentally went to me. <laughs> is where it actually should go. Uh, we're gonna take a quick break. When we come back, we will find out how you both feel. This will go on in the bracket, and who wins? Best friend of the week. Mm-hmm. Taste buds. That is the Royal Tenenbaums show. That's a shit. That's better than uh, what's that? What's that World War Two movie from '85? Come see me. Come see me. Come and come and see me, maybe. <laughs> Don't you see me, baby? Royal Tenenbaums was better than that. Like there was no World War Two in Come and See. So the more World War Two, the less you think a movie's good. That that's my philosophy. How do we feel? this is going to do in the bracket i think it's got a real puncher's chance because it feels like the kind of movie that we all have like up in our top three uh and maybe none of us has it as number one at the end of it but we all have it highly ranked and so then if we disagree about what number one is then i think that this could it could slip in yeah i think it could yeah last week's movie was a tough one like that's gonna be tough for anybody and then, Mike, at the end of this show, you're going to say next week's movie. And I <laughs> that one's a tough one. <laughs> so, yeah, I sort of agree that this might shoot past both of those. There's a chance. I'm not saying it's a good one, but there's a chance. We have, like, um, two really, like, feel good, but then still, like, 
dramatic and important movies like the spirited away and royal tenables are both good movies at the at, at the same time they feel really good to watch them and i wonder how that's gonna like how that's gonna serve them because especially the year we're recording piano teacher is, is really <laughs> tough ryan yeah mulholland drives really tough and it's like you know uh fellowship of the ring is not really actually being considered so like <laughs> i forgot we did yeah. that show <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah that one might be out I'm, I'm on record saying that like i really don't give a fuck if you want to watch the movie again like i don't think that has any bearing on whether it's good or not uh and i think that doing the podcast makes that even more so you don't have to watch it again right like we right. don't have to watch we did it this was the quintessential watch <laughs> yeah we don't have to watch the the the, the piano teacher or Baholan driver or whatever ever again but Royal Tenenbaums is so hard to look at, like not fondly, you know, yeah. like that, 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 the heart that it, or the fire that it builds in your heart, I think is very important. Did, did watching it this time for the show change your opinion positively or negatively than it had been before? Uh, this movie's never gone down before. I've only watched this and had its stock rise. I feel like, um, there is something about the movie that makes me feel a little uncomfortable because it's, it's because of the way it's a, such a fantasy and i don't know why like i don't know if, I, I don't say that's totally valid it just makes me feel a little uncomfortable but like judging it for this show it kind of like just confirmed what i naturally felt about the movie then when i would like study why i felt that way i felt like it always confirmed and so like i i think that honestly like the movie you don't have to like actually get into granular granular detail for why this movie is good you just can experience it but then it also exists on that level where you can really get in deep yeah, and I guess for this this show, I'm 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 trying to deal with like what the auteur theory means to me and if it's important. And this movie, I think that Wes Anderson is so important to me because he's not only somebody who taught me about it, but like also why it's important. And you can just see in everything he does that like whether he means it or not, it's the most Wes Anderson y thing that you could ever do. And I do think that is important, you know. I th- I do think that like he doesn't mean to make all these shots look so weird and all these characters talk so weird. It just is what's going to happen, and I find it's that just, inherently he, interesting. He has such a strong Wes Anderson DNA, yeah, and and thumbprint that even if he's like, I'm going to make a normal movie now, <laughs> he makes a movie and then looks at it. And, and it's just Wes Anderson. I think when we boil down the auteur theory, is that it, like what it comes down to is not like are you good or not. It's just you can't not. You right. can't fucking help yourself. Like Look, if, I'm trying. <laughs> if uh, you know Herzog and Wes Anderson traded scripts, they would just be Herzog or Anderson movies. You know. Interesting. We will see in a few weeks how Royal Tenenbaums does. But now, the most important part of the evening that everybody's been waiting for: who will be my best friend and deliver me fresh baked blueberry muffins every day for the next week, among other tasks. I feel like this was a good showing by everybody involved. Uh, I do not have the host count in front of me, but I feel like I got six points, and that's pretty impressive. I thought, yeah, I thought you did uh, well. Thank you. Uh, and that, I will give you no points. The points are closed, but I'll remember that for later. <laughs> Ryan, uh-huh. this is one of your favorite movies. It is. And this means a lot to you. It does. And that's why so I'm proud to gonna... say you did get 38 points. Uh-huh. And that's pretty good. Yes. Pretty good. That's a solid performance. And Greg, mm-hmm. my best friend from last yep. week. You came in here, you did it again. I did it. You 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 were you're really good. You're really strong. You got thirty five oh. points. It was a very close showing, but oh. Ryan did 
take this one by the hair off of Gene Hackman's ass. I gotta. I don't mean to speak for Greg, but nobody likes the way that you deliver information. Like, I feel like you could have just said that straight up, just said numbers, names, and numbers. See, Wes Anderson's gonna Anderson. I was trying to deliver that in the. I thought you did cleanest. I thought you did great. Most forefront Care Bear stare possible. It was very painful to me personally, and I assume that was your goal. So I think you did a great <laughs> it job. It was not. Oh, okay. I thought I was trying to be nice to everyone, so I mic'd it up. <laughs> also, the, the cool thing about Greg is like, oh, that's painful. Must be good. Must be art. That's probably <laughs> this art. This is probably right. <laughs> I made yeah. Art should hurt, and I made you hurt. I'm art incarnate. God made art, and art don't fart. That's true. I've never seen a. Yeah, he didn't. He he didn't paint a can of beans. Our host, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> that white-haired artist from Pittsburgh didn't can't paint no can of beans. Uh, can of beans, right? Oh, one more fun <laughs> fact, by the way, because we're probably not going to talk about Royal Tenenbaums ever again. Uh, 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 Mordecai flew away. Somebody found Mordecai, held it for ransom. They said, "Go fuck yourself." They found a different hawk. Uh, and then uh, it was more white, like it had more white feathers, and then they just wrote that into the movie and then said, fuck <laughs> that guy. just talked about trauma and made it thematically linked. Maybe this it, isn't Mark. Hey, listeners, if anybody ever holds your baby for ransom, have another baby. Just that's all That's baby. all you have to do. They're a dime a dozen. That is our show. Ryan and I will be best friends, and I can't wait for that this week. Fuck uh, you. Ouch. That makes me wish Greg had won. Me uh, too. Next week... We will be watching Mulholland Drive, which I think is one of those fun movies to watch they were talking about (laughs) earlier. Uh, Until then, keep watching those movies.